from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. Welcome to the Coco Crew Podcast. A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information. Featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Hey, you got your Coco 3 yet? Coco. Welcome back, Coco Cruisers, to episode 53 of the Coco Crew Podcast, where we report and you decide. <laughs> I'm here with my fellow Coco Crew members. Uh, let's see, who have we got? Uh, we've got um, Mr. Neil Blanchard. Hello, Neil. Hello, John, and everyone listening. <laughs> All right. Uh, hello, Mr. Mike Rowan. Hello, Coco World. <laughs> Very good, very good. Hello, Mr. Our, our favorite little Cajun sparkle, Mr. Boise Pete. <laughs> Coco forever. <laughs> and, of course, the indomitable Mr. Ron Klein. How you doing, Ron? That's a lot nicer than my wife calls me. Hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, very good, very good. Time marches on. It's getting closer to the end of the year. Everyone uh, getting ready for... Uh, for Christmas and uh, the new Star Wars movie coming up in a couple of months. <laughs> Exciting times. Hope it doesn't suck. John, you said one. it right there. Hope it doesn't suck. I was not happy <laughs> with the last one at all, what they did with Luke and stuff. So, yeah. Are you talking about Star Wars, not Coca Fest? Um, no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, anyway. Uh, let's see. Well, speaking of Coco Fest, uh, it's coming up in about what six months from now. That's about right. Very good. Very good. We got Tandy Assembly is roughly a year away now. We just finished up with Tandy Assembly uh, this month. Good time was had by uh, well, most at least. That's not <laughs> good time was had by all. I'm sure. <laughs> Anybody working on anything cool? Any any projects or anything like that? I uh, took on a little side project. It's not not even. I'm not sure it even raises to the to the level of project at this point because it's fairly simple. But I did uh, figure out uh, where to hack into the, um, the the extended color basic ROMs for the play command and uh, intercept the um, the actual playing of the the actual notes and and uh, figure out how to transfer them over to the game master cartridge so that uh, you know you could. Get a slightly better uh, square wave. Uh, <laughs> it's not a huge difference, really, but it's, uh, it could lead to something more if we could um, potentially it could could expand out from there to do um, some extra features for the play command. The problem being is that the play command is in ROM and and built a certain way and with certain assumptions, and it's not it doesn't lend itself very well to playing multiple tracks. Uh, you know, multiple tones at the same time. Um, and it doesn't particularly lend itself to um, to playing music in the background, <laughs> which, of course, the, the two main features people would want. Um, so we'll see where that goes. Um, might have to do take a different approach on that one if we actually want to see it happen. 
Uh, I know uh, John Strong has talked about doing uh, something like that. Originally, he was talking about doing it for the Game Master cartridge, and then, you know, like so many others, he got uh, enamored with the uh, OPL chips. <laughs> and he's been talking about doing that for the Mega Mini, MPI, whatever. Mostly, I think he's been doing 3D printing, so I'm not sure when that's going to show up, but uh, I went ahead and took a little stab at it just to see where things are. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more later in the show. Anybody got any new acquisitions? I acquired an, an Alware hard disk, SCSI disk. I actually bought it from uh, Mark Marlette at Tandy Assembly. Oh, yeah. Haven't, haven't had a chance to uh, spin it up yet, but uh, that'll be fun. I've got a, a Kenton set up, so be interesting to see how the Alware went. I actually, I actually came with the uh, ROM, so I've got uh, the uh, Owl Basic uh, extensions on, on ROM, so should be fun. Cool, cool. That was my first hard drive controller. Oh, yeah? Yep. Very nifty. Now, let's see. What I've bought a couple of things on eBay, computer-ish, nothing too Coco-specific. I did uh, order a a tape of uh, Leggett for the Dragon 32 uh, from the U.K., so, you know, paid uh, uh, a ridiculous amount of money for the shipping. <laughs> Hasn't come yet, so we'll see about that. But it looks like kind of a... A uh, uh, could be a cool game. Um, anyway, definitely cool artwork. <laughs> Anything else? Anyone else? Neil, how about you? You usually pick something up along the way each month. Yeah, I, um, it's a little Canadian content, actually. I acquired a working a distal 4-in-1 controller with a hard drive and a floppy drive setup. Cool. Cool. So Very exciting stuff. That. Yeah, it runs nice. But I always wanted one, so it even has a uh, real-time clock in there. Nice. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, as we know, for some people in the community have decided that a real-time clock is the ultimate Cocoa peripheral. <laughs> that, uh, of course, the people that are into that kind of stuff sometimes uh, are a little bit fickle about <laughs> what their favorite uh, Cocoa peripherals are as the time flies and as somebody brings out something new. But, you know, it's always good to know what time it is, right? So, I just got a uh, clock see. that says Cocoa time. <laughs> that's uh that's the um the license plate on my uh, on my delorean coca time want to spin out at 88 miles per hour um oh well well that's enough of that um i guess that'll make for a good enough introduction so why don't we um wrap up the introduction here take a little break and we'll be back with some announcements the Halloween experts at Magic Manor have everything you'll need this year, including actual character masks from famous motion pictures. And they can show you the proper application of makeup to impress that special someone. Magic Manor's professional hand-painted custom masks start as low as $2.50. This Halloween, remember Magic Manor. Wigs, masks, makeup, costumes, shockingly authentic. Magic Manor, East Wind Mall. Excuse me, can I help you? Mm, I'm not sure. I'm looking for the perfect color computer monitor. It should be a 12-inch computer monitor that has TTL RGB, RGB analog, and composite video inputs. It needs a display resolution of 640 by 240 and support 80 by 25 text on the screen. It should have a monochrome mode, a comb filter for composite video, and a built-in audio amplifier. Oh, and a two-year parts and labor warranty. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. You want a Magnavox. The Magnavox Professional RGB Monitor 80. The perfect color computer monitor. 
right, welcome back, Coca Cruisers. Now it's time for some announcements. You are, of course, listening to the Coco Crew Podcast. We are available on Twitter as at Coco Crew Podcast. That's uh, at sign C O C O C R E W P O D C A S T. Uh, if you're prone to sending tweets, please tweet at us and we might even tweet back at you. Uh, of course, we are on Facebook with a page, um, the Coco Crew Podcast. That's four separate words. Um, should be pretty easy to find, although if you pick up a Caribbean uh, music band, that's that's a different cover crew. <laughs> um, so if you're on the Book of Aces, do come on and check us out. Let's see. We are an audio podcast. So of course, we're available on um, iTunes, Google Play. Uh, you can also stream us uh, with Spotify, Ditcher, and TuneIn, which, of course, is the service used by uh, Amazon's Alexa. So, Alexa, play Coco Crew Podcast, <laughs> and you'll hear our, our soothing voices. Um, let's see. For some time, we've been taking our audio uh, episodes and putting them through a mechanical conversion to a um, uh, video that uh, we publish on uh, YouTube. Uh, it's uh, not the greatest video ever, but it does have the um, advantage of uh, if you turn on subtitles, it might be a little easier, particularly if you're not a native English speaker. It might be a little easier to uh, follow along uh, with our diverse accents. <laughs> Speaking of our video episodes, uh, they have been available on the Coco TV channel on Roku, which, of course, is sponsored by Mr. Roger Taylor. I uh, have been using my Roku box a little more lately, and uh, when I sit and check out the Coco TV channel, uh, I see that um, Roger's a little behind on our episode count. So if uh, if you're stuck in the episode, you know, in the 40s, um, <laughs> you might want to send Roger a little uh, a little note prompting him to update <laughs> the uh, feed. Let's see. We are of course a member of the Throwback Network. The Throwback Network is a list of uh, retro themed podcasts. Um, not all of them are technology-related, but most of them have at least some ties to the 80s or maybe a few to the 70s or early 90s. Um, but, uh, you know, some of them are cultural, some of them are, you know, some of them are technology. You know, whatever. If you're into retro listening and uh, you're finished and caught up on the Coco Crew, then we recommend you check out the Throwback Network. We are also listed on the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. This also is a retro-themed podcast. In this case, all of them are related to um, video games and home computers, uh, again, from that same period, mostly the 80s. There might be some from the 70s and maybe a few from the 90s. But, again, if you're um, all caught up on the Coco Crew, then we recommend you check out the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. Audio for the Coco Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you have a need to host audio on the Internet, uh, whether it be for your business, your church, your own podcast, whatever, we recommend that you check out Cyber Ears, where you will get your audio on your terms. If you wish to reach out and communicate with the host of the Coco Group Podcast, we have a few email addresses set up. The first three will reach all the hosts, or at least I hope they will. <laughs> 
Um, we have a show, S H O W at cococrew.org. That's C O C O C R E W dot O R G. We also have podcast at cococrew.org and feedback, F E E D B A C K at cococrew.org. And if you wanted to reach out to one of the hosts individually, then we all, all each have an email address that you can use. I've got John, J O H N. Uh, Neil's got Neil, N E I L. Mike has Mike, M I K E. Boise has Boise, B O I S Y. And Ron, of course, has Ron, R O N, all of them at cococrew.org. So don't be a stranger. Send us some email, give us some feedback, tell us what you like or don't like. Tell us how much you love cartridges or how much you hate them. You know, <laughs> whatever suits you fancy. At this point of the announcements, we generally like to cover some events in the real world that you, we think that our listeners might enjoy. We were getting a little low, but have got a few new announcements this time. So, so um, we're kind of refilling a bit. So coming up, November 2nd, 2019, we have the 37th annual Chicago TI International World Fair. So if you're a fan of the Texas Instruments line of home computers, and particularly if you're convenient to the Chicago area, then uh, we recommend that you check out uh, this event, which will be held at the Evanston Public Library in Evanston, Illinois. Has anyone Uh ever been to that show? Yeah, I was at it two years ago. it's not nearly as big as Coco Fest. Uh, it's about maybe a third or quarter of the size, though people come in from, you know, a variety of locations. It's in a very, very small room. Evanston Library is very nice, they're, but they're in a very small room. Uh, the people were nice. They do have some tables set up. I don't want to say there's necessarily vendors there, but there are people that are selling old parts. There's some, you know, newer things like we see in the Coco community. And um, they do have speaking events and things like that. So for for people that are into the TI, um, you know, if you're in the area, it's it's definitely worth the trip. Like I said, I went a couple of years ago, but their dates they conflict with some stuff. Um, in some cases, they've overlapped uh, what we've you know things that we got going on in the Coco community. So I haven't been able to attend, but I do because it's close. I just I didn't even make it to this last one. I think this last one was just. Uh, this past weekend, so. Well, it's coming up November 2nd is what I have, so. Oh, maybe I didn't miss it. Hold on. Well, again, if you're interested in the uh, Texas Instruments line of home computers, well, is there even a line? If you're interested in the TI-99, I guess there were a few. There were TI-99 and four and the 4A, whatever. <laughs> if, that's your, <laughs> if that's your bag, then uh, we recommend you check out this event. All right, moving on. Coming up in December, December 7th of 2019, a uh, date which will live in infamy. <laughs> I'm sure hopefully some of you will get the reference. <laughs> yeah. um, we're talking about World of Commodore 2019 being held in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And, uh, I know Neil has gone to this event once or twice. I think he's talking about getting a table. Uh, is that still in the works, Neil? It's in the works. I will be there. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I guess it should be the World Very. War II of Commodore. <laughs> <laughs> Very exciting stuff. I hope there are no sneak attacks. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be cool. <laughs> Just 
And uh, just to you let never know. know um, it, there has been an announcement actually about it. It's only one day this year. Usually it's Saturday and Sunday, but they've dropped Sunday. So if anybody's planning on going, uh, make it Saturday. All right. Well, I'm sure Toronto in December is a great uh, place to visit. <laughs> but probably well, better December than January or February. I was just going to say, and it's early December, so you're still kind of safe. So the ground may still not be totally frozen. So. <laughs> Pre-tundra. Very exciting stuff. All right. Well, again, that's the uh, World of Commodore 2019, December 7th in Toronto, Canada. All right, moving on. This spring, or coming up next spring, 2020, uh, March 21st to 22nd, we've got the Vintage Computer Festival Pacific Northwest. And, of course, this will be held at the um, uh, Living Computer Museum and Labs in Seattle, Washington. And it's uh, Saturday, March 21st, and Sunday, March 22nd of 2020. Never been to that event. I've never been to this uh, uh, venue. Sure sounds cool. <laughs> if you are in, uh, in or near the Pacific Northwest, part of the United States, then uh, I hope you'll find a way to, to get there. It looks like a cool event. Have any of you guys been to that one? I've never been to that. It's only a couple actually, of years old, I think. Yeah, I'm actually thinking of attending one. I, I've never been out to the Pacific Northwest anyway. I may... Uh, I may work a vacation around that just to go. Cool. That could be fun. All right. Well, moving on. Coming up in April 18th and 19th of the year 2020, we have the 29th annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest, which this year will be relocating to Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Could be a fun event. This event uh, inspired uh, the show you're listening to now. And a great number of friendships among the hosts. <laughs> and uh, it's um, been a um, highlight of my year for a number uh, of years. So coming up again this year, hopefully it's going to be good. And you say it's the last one? <laughs> but, uh, it's always the last because they never know if they're going to have another one. It's and, um, one. yeah, we, we hope it's not the last one. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> This year, um, the the week after, not the same week, so that's good. Coming up April 24th through 26th, so that includes Friday, uh, you have Vintage Computer Festival East, which, of course, is um, being held in Wall, New Jersey, at um, the InfoAge Science Center. And uh, so that's a cool facility. It has some uh, history to it, and it's kind of mixed in. There's some other uh, museum-ish historical stuff there. It's kind of a cool event. Um, they, um, uh, or not kind of cool, it is a cool event. Uh, they have uh, a variety of computers, uh, many of which are mini compu- computers, or I wouldn't be surprised if they had mainframe computers to show up, though those are a little hard to handle. <laughs> but um, uh, definitely there'll be, um, we'll see, you'll find demos of 1960s mini computers, 70s homebrew systems, 1980s 8 bidders, <laughs> and a few oddities. So it uh, should be a cool thing. If you're in the, um, the what's called the, you know, the eastern or northeastern part of the United States, you know, up there in, uh, in or around New England, New York, that sort of area, uh, then uh, I would recommend that you check out the Vintage Computer Festival East. 
uh, April 24th through 26th of 2020. So the Friday is a special event with the for the you know the in-depth geeks to get some classes, uh, some learning stuff. Pretty cool. All right, and then last on our announcements, um, they have announced Kansas Fest for the year 2020 will be held July 21st through 26th. Says look for registration details around January, but uh, they do have, uh, if you check out the link, they do have some videos from 2019 available. Again, this is the um, the computer, uh, you know, the, the summer camp for Apple II computer geeks. <laughs> Pretty cool event. You go live in the dorms, hang out with your your people. Um, they are Apple II people, but you know it washes off. So, <laughs> you hope. so, so it is, of course, hot. Oh my God, it's hot. <laughs> but, <laughs> but a pretty cool event overall there in Kansas City. So uh, again, that is um, July twenty first through twenty sixth of two thousand and twenty. All right, well, that is the end of our announcements. So we're going to take another little break, and then we'll be back with some news. It's spooktacular savings on scary games at your local Radio Shack dealer. Save up to 50% on best-selling titles such as 13 Ghosts, Bedlam, Dancing Demon, Haunted House, Dungeons of Daggerath. These games are sure to please you and your family as you hand out candy to anyone who knocks at your door. It's a happy Halloween from Radio Shack, a candy company. Enter a world of decadence. Decadence. Drenched in rich, dazzling neon color. The TRS-80 color computer. Only available at Radio Shack. Display dazzling graphics. dazzling graphics. Choose from a rich palette of colors including magenta, cyan, and buff. Decadence. Get your own 4K TRS-80 color computer for just $399. Get 16K for just an additional $119 more. Experience the bold world of color. Decadence. Only at Radio Shop. All right. Welcome back for the news. All right. And uh, what a news art, uh, item it is. Um, starting <laughs> off here, this was uh, the hot topic a few weeks ago. Glenside Club Officer election results. Uh, they came in. Yeah, boy, did they. And uh, <laughs> we have a new uh, new present for uh, Glenside for Cocoa Fest. And it's uh, to Eric Canals. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Yeah, but uh, it was a close. Uh, it was a close call, uh, as you know, John. Yeah, it was a reasonably close. Um, you know, I have mixed feelings. Um, uh, I wasn't sure I even wanted the <laughs> the job again, but I did. Uh, I did stand for it. I didn't try too hard. I think maybe that showed. So. There were some external forces in play, too, I think, but uh, I don't want to go into a lot of detail on the podcast. If uh, anybody wants my my take, uh, then uh, you can uh, try John at CocoCrew.org and see if I'll respond to that. Um, but uh, uh, good luck to Eric. He he is local to the Chicago area, which will please uh, 
certain Glenside members who uh, always seem to think that uh, only the local people should have the uh, the, the reins of power, as it were, <laughs> which, of course, is funny in and of itself. Um, but, um, you know, as I said in, in the uh, announcement, if you look at the links, I'll be retiring to a private island, which I'll be purchasing with my Glenside presidential pension. And from there, I plan to find as many turkeys as possible to harass with my hurtful humor. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, it is what it is. Uh, I hope it works out well. You know, I originally ran for vice president of, of Glenside, and then Tony uh, Pedraza, who had been president, uh, just didn't run. And so I kind of got um, uh, recruited into running for president last year. I think we did a pretty good thing. I think, you know, the the, um, the venue from uh, that we've been going to for years decided they're not going to host us anymore. We got a team together um, led by, you know, Mr. Mike Rowan that found us a new venue, which looks good to me. And I think it's going to be a nice place to have the event. At least it's not in the basement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I'm not going to go any deeper into the politics there. I just say, let's just say I hope it all works out well. And, um, I hope uh, Glenn's has stay strong for the foreseeable future. So moving on. <laughs> All right. Our uh, next uh, news item is from David L. Cradock at Ars Technica. Uh, this is a cool title here, How a Basement Hacker Transformed Donkey Kong for the Atari 2600. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. It's basically, a, you know, it's a story about taking the game, you know, Donkey Kong from the arcade and, Making it happen on the Atari 2600. If you like those sort of those sort of stories, then you'll probably enjoy it. If uh, if technical details or or discussions gives you hives or whatever, well, you're probably not going to like. It. <laughs> but check it out, see if you like it. It's an excerpt from a new book, so if you do like the the story, you can go and find the book and and um, give yourself something to read on these uh, upcoming long winter nights. Yeah, not to give any spoiler alerts, but uh, Gary Kitchen, you know, he's kind of an iconic character, so. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty interesting. That's true. All right, our next uh, news article is from Sheldon McDonald. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of him uh, on the uh, Facebook group a lot lately, and that's great. Um, yeah, Sheldon's been pretty active lately. Yeah, yeah, it's good, good to see. Uh, and he has done some simple prototyping and will be making new game pads with two buttons. That was uh, it was neat to see, you know, because uh, while we were kind of dabbling with joysticks there uh, a while back, so it's neat to see some different ideas. Yeah, well, the joysticks are a cool project, and lots of people have different ideas of what they might like. Some people have ideas for special controllers for specific games. I've had some of those kind of ideas. Um, I've built joysticks. Other people have built joysticks of different variations. This is a cool kind of looking one. He's using um I think he's using some kind of thumb pad from like a modern style controller or a thumb um, thumbstick. And uh, I don't know, I haven't got one. I don't know if they're for sale to the general public or not, but uh, it looked like it could be fun. And uh, Neil's our gaming expert. It'd be cool if uh, somebody sent Neil one of these uh, game pads so we could check it out. Hint, hint. Yeah, that... <laughs> Test some games on the case he's got. Looks really nice. Yeah, so is that 3D printed? I wasn't yeah. sure. I can't remember. Yeah, it's it's hard to tell. It looks it looks pretty smooth. I do see some some linearity in the surface, shall we say? I'll bet it's three D printed, but 
you know, that's uh, that works for me. <laughs> so gets cool. the job done. Exactly. All right, our next one is from here we go. You ready? Jim Gary. <laughs> Very good. Jim Gary. Uh, he's got a new game here, uh, Rescue, or actually Rescue Update. This is a really cool game. It's, uh, I, I can't believe the speed this plays on is all for, for basic code. I, was I agree. This, this is pretty nice. The speed's pretty impressive. Very cool. It's always good to see Jim. Uh, it's, well, he's always active. <laughs> it's just good to see. Yeah. He's like yeah. the Energizer Bunny. He just keeps going. Um, <laughs> you know, he's the, the true Cylon of the community, I think. But um Despite his uh, his preference for the much uh, maligned MC10, which uh, <laughs> I think is kind of misplaced uh, with the people that, that down it, but as long as it's getting some love, I'm happy to see it. And uh, some of those games make their way to the Coco as well. Yeah. Uh, so don't shoot the messenger, right? Yeah, that's good. It's Coco's little cousin. Exactly. All right, our next uh, news article is from Randolph Rudolph. Title is so I made a little converter for a digital joystick. Now this is kind of familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, it's kind of it's cool to see the um, the hacker craftsmanship. I love for that sure. he's using a cigar box and uh, arcade <laughs> yeah. components. Um, cool. The circuit that he's using is is the uh, basic, um, you know, the the. Atari converter um, circuit that's um, passed around that, you know, as we hear from certain people that has been around for years or whatever, the circuit would have a problem if he was using a um, Sega Genesis uh, a controller, but he's not, so it doesn't. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't matter. But uh, no, it's cool. Again, it's cool to see somebody uh, doing some little Arshan craft stuff, having fun, making something for the Coco. Uh, looks like they're having fun with it. He says it looks ugly, but it works great. And I don't even think it's ugly. I think it uh, yeah. it looks, you know, it looks just like it ought to. So very yeah, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah it is. It's cool. Awesome. All right. Uh, our next news article is from Nick Morentis, and he's got another update on his Gunstar video game blog, uh, chapter twenty-one. Now he is working on levels three and four. So it's nice to see he's progressing on this game, and it's. Uh, not becoming vaporware. Yeah. Nice to be adding in the boss aliens. Uh, I'm sure he'll get there. It looks like a good game. Um, yeah. You know, we'll just have to wait until it comes out. It's a very um, ambitious game, so big project. Yeah. Well, you know, good luck to, to, to Nick. I'm sure he'll, he's having some fun. So the next news item is, I got my mini MPI today. Very cool rig with my GMC music card by Sheldon Cooper. Looks like a video, I'm sorry, a Facebook post. Uh, Sheldon has a mini MPI from Ed Snyder, a.k.a. Zipster. He has a GMC cartridge in it, and uh, he is uh, showing it off on uh, on Facebook. Very cool. John, you ought to be proud of this one. <laughs> and I am um, happy to see. Uh, well, again, it's good to see Sheldon. He's been a lot more active lately, which is cool to see. I'm glad he's having some fun. Uh, I love, of course, that you know he's using the um, the, the Game Master cartridge. Uh, he's um, he purchased a number of the PCBs from me and has been building them himself and working towards what I'm not sure. I think he's doing some projects mostly to educate himself for future projects, which is pretty cool. 
I like this one because it, you know, demonstrates you can use the game master cartridge right there alongside your STC uh, in the in the MPI. If you're allergic to uh, games on ROM, <laughs> you could you'd still um, distribute your games on cassette or diskette or whatever you want to, and uh, you can still use a game master cartridge and you can have sound today, basically as many as you want uh, of the of the devices. Uh, so. No, there's no real backlog on uh, on getting them. It's good to see. Yep, good stuff. All right, the next news item is the Coco Show, a TRS-80 color computer podcast by Boat and Aaron. So this is an interesting development in the Coco community, a new podcast that focuses on the Coco uh, by two new individuals who I don't think I've ever met, but they focus specifically on gaming for the color computer. I'm not familiar with these guys. Uh, they seem to have, uh, they, I think they have another podcast related to, I want to say the Amiga, I'm not 100% sure. One of them apparently has a Coco in his past, and uh, they decided they want to do another podcast, and um, this is what popped out. And uh, they have done uh, at least one regular episode where they uh, did some walkthroughs of Poltergeist and Sailor Man. Uh, so uh, you can check it out if you're, especially if you're into the seeing gaming stuff done and hearing talks about that. Um, it might uh, it might be a real cool thing for you. They're enthusiastic. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yep, it's always good to see more involvement. Yep. All right. The next news item is titled "Galaxy" by Avalon Hill. This is a contribution video on YouTube by our friend of the show, Mr. Jim Gary. It looks like a game. I, I'm not an Avalon uh, Hill guy, but I remember they made some games for the Coco back in the day. Looks like a text, uh, text-based game. Yeah, I don't know a lot about the game itself. It's mostly just uh, <laughs> if I see one from Jim, I usually include it. It's cool to see him porting some stuff. And like I said, that's kind of his basic MO is to kind of do what you might call unlicensed ports, <laughs> um, which uh, – might bring up some bad blood with some folks, but it's a pretty good nature stuff. A lot of times he's doing type-in games from other systems or whatever. In this case, Avalon Hill, um, most of their games uh, that I've seen were multi-platform. And a lot of times they were kind of least common denominator, and so they were, uh, you know, text-based or whatever, but fun. And um, it looks like this is Jim's uh, effort to recreate it. Looks pretty cool. Yeah, good job. The next news item is graphics. Express demo video by Bill Pierce. So Bill posted a YouTube video showing the loading of a demo of a product called GraphExpress, which was uh, a Sundog Systems product from 1991. It was actually its own GUI. I think you could write GUI-based apps with uh, resizable moving windows with this uh, with this environment. Very cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think there's anything really new here per se. You know, I think it's a demo of you know, something that's been around from the past. But it was cool to see. Uh, you get some talk about GraphExpress from time to time. Uh, I haven't seen many people use it for anything in particular, but it was, I think, supposed to be, you know, like I say, a platform for doing other software. So cool to see the demo and see kind of what it's capable of. And uh, there you go. Awesome. The next news item is just got a nicer SCART cable working by Chris Burke. So Chris posted on Facebook that he designed his own SCART cable, 
No need for compositive USB connections. Looks like a little homebrew project from the great hardware guy himself from back in the day, Mr. Chris Burke. Yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, this has been a thing in the community uh, for a little while, is taking the uh, RGB output from the Cocoa 3 and uh, adapting them to uh, these boxes you can get on the open market for um, uh, SCART input, which um, basically are designed to turn SCART into HDMI, which, of course, is a more modern video interface. The sync signals that come out of the Coco by default are a little, shall we say, non-standard. Um, I think they're positive sync, uh, positive going pulses rather than negative, something to that effect. Anyway, other cables that have been out there were started with the Barry Nelson design and have been continued uh, with the Jason Rygard, I guess, is the one that makes them available. They've used another cable going to the composite video to generate sync signals. This version here from uh, uh, Mr. Burke is um, generating the, he, he's combining the, the positive going sync signals, uh, horizontal and vertical, uh, using a chip to recombine them into a, a suitable composite sync signal. He, he was doing a little experimentation. He had a, a button cell battery on there for to power the chip. Then later, I think he modified his cocoa with a, an extra power line going to the video adapter or the video port. And, and power the chip from that. Is this ideal for everyone? You know, I don't know. It's a little bit DIY. Seems to work. I'm not sure if that's ultimately what he went with or <laughs> if he if he just turned around and bought one from somebody. But, you know, we'll see. It's cool to see some experimentation going on. And, you know, sometimes well, that's the thing with experiments, right? Sometimes they work out. Sometimes they don't. But it's cool to see people trying things. Indeed. Are you tired of blindly reaching behind your Coco just to find the reset or power buttons? Can you even tell when your Coco is powered on? Avoid the risk of life-threatening electrical shocks and painful lacerations that lurk behind your computer with reset power switches from Morton Bay Software. Move the power switch and reset switch where they belong on the front side of your Coco. The included LED will tell you when your Coco is powered on. Made from only the highest quality components, Coco 1, D, and E boards and Coco 2s feature totally solderless installation. Coco 1F boards require some soldering. The Coco 1 kit is just $24.95. The Coco 2 kit is just $27.95. End the agony of guessing where those buttons are. Order your reset power switches today. Morton Bay Software, Division of Morton Bay Laboratory, Santa Barbara, California. Radio Shack presents Great Moments in History. Christopher Columbus, you discovered the New World. Actually, it was the Vikings, but I did discover something special. Big savings at Radio Shack. Look for your Radio Shack flyer in this week's mail. Save 25 to 50% on select items throughout the store. Mr. Columbus, what do you remember most about landing in the New World? I couldn't cash a check. All the banks were closed. Radio Shack, America's technology store. All right, the next news item is I had to replace the card socket on my Model 3 by John Bielek. It looks like John commented on Facebook with a post that he scarfed a replacement card socket connector as Model 3 from a damaged Coco 2 motherboard. Yeah, it's, um, he, he was able to take a part from Coco 2, I think, sort of a tale of oil, I think, uh, with uh, I'm kind of scanning it now, but what I recall was that uh, he was essentially complaining about uh, his soldering skills had uh, maybe deteriorated over the years or whatever. There was some talk about, you know, what kind of tools could be used and 
how to do the desoldering better or whatever. But it's another one of those tales of woe that uh, we sometimes get where people go to <laughs> do a repair job and uh, sometimes make things a little worse. Cautionary tale to some degrees, and you know, before you practice on your cocoa, make sure you <laughs> <laughs> make sure you kind of know what you're doing. Um, so we don't put any cocos permanently out of commission. Our next item is from John Day. Septandy. That's his, I guess a hashtag Septandy. Quick tour of my 3D remake of TRS-80 classic Temple of Rom. And I think we've covered this story before. He's just developed more on it. And this is kind of a modern uh, 3D remake of Temple of Rom on a modern computer system. He kind of walks through more features that he has in the game and just kind of the prototypes that he's got in, in 3D. So like the spiders, for instance, you can see one of those crawling around. Uh, it, it's kind of neat. It'll be interesting. If you're a fan of Temple of Rom, you'll definitely want to check this out. Well, definitely cool. We'd, uh, like I said, we had heard about the project in the past and hadn't heard anything for a while. So here's a little update. Very exciting. Yeah. All right. Our next one is... Of course, everyone knows Jamie Heineman and Adam Savage. This is Mythbusters glue for fun and profit. If you're a Mythbusters fan or see any of Adam's videos out there, uh, you, this one's for you. It's literally talking about you know, building things and how much glue plays a part in all of that in building things. Fun to read. Definitely something in there for anybody who, who makes things. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's why I was included is just the um... – Kind of the arts and crafts aspect sometimes is a fun way to participate in the hobby and, you know, building joysticks or building enclosures for electronic projects, whatever. Um, you do enough of that, you you probably could uh, see the value in uh, <laughs> this kind of tutorial. Yeah, definitely. All right, our next one is from Lewin Day at Hackaday. Building video pong with discrete components. Uh, this, this one is really cool because... Uh, I think the original Pong game was Discrete Components, wasn't it? Probably so. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Uh, yeah, I think so. So there's absolutely no ICs in this. Of course, it's pretty sizable. It's kind of cool to see the giant power supply on it to drive all those transistors. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, you definitely should check this out. because And it's Color Pong. That's what's kind of neat, too. And it's a fully functioning Pong game where you can change the number of players and he's got knobs to control. Uh, different things on it. So pretty neat to see someone actually uh, do that from scratch with absolutely no ICs. <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. Kind of amazing, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, this next one is Jenny List at Hackaday. The game cartridge isn't as straightforward as you think. Uh, this is kind of cool. It's talking about different cartridges in the day. They weren't just simply ROMs for mostly looking at the Super Nintendo and uh, of that genre, that some of these cartridges actually had like 68,000 processors in them and uh, coprocessors to do things that the hardware by itself couldn't do. Kind of reminds yeah, me of the, uh, you know, the GMC, where you can put that on board on a cartridge. It's just an example of adding more functionality than the, uh, the machine has all by itself. Yep, definitely, and that's why it's included there is uh, kind of the link. <laughs> it's a cool way to expand the capabilities of the Coco, and uh, like I said, we're not not really blazing any ground with that. Um, it's not heretical. Some people like to make out like um, the, the GMC is a bad idea because, you know, if you had two games, you'd have to buy two sets of the same hardware. It's like, oh, yeah, I'd have to spend an extra $3 twice or 
<laughs> or, you know, 25 yeah. or, or whatever the cost of the cartridge is. But, you know, it's no different than buying two other cartridges, really. But, you know, whatever. It's not a new idea. It's a way to add some capabilities to the hardware without having to uh, do brain surgery on the whole computer, which seems to be the approach some others prefer these days. But <laughs> yeah. well, I'm not going to that. You know, and also to note, I mean, back in the day, that's how these um, game consoles, you know, lived longer. You know, it bought time for companies until they had to release a new updated console. You can put yeah. extra hardware and get it to do more things. Kind of neat. Yeah, it gave them more of an Absolutely. ability to compete, for sure. All right, our next one is from dot mad dot at worldofdragon.org. This is the Dragon Game Base, and maybe you know a little bit more about this, John. Uh, it, it looks like it's for Windows. Uh, sounds like it's just a giant collection of uh, Dragon games that's been extremely well done with screenshots of all the games, and uh, sounds like it's pretty massive. Yeah, so, of course, if you're a Windows user, because it is for Windows, and, of course, if you're a Dragon user, it's a good way to um, to have... A lot of these, especially since they're cassette-based games, they're all you just sort of plug in your dragon to the audio out of your of your Windows machine, and uh, you can um, select on your Windows machine which game you want to play, and then load from the cassette port, and there you go. As they say, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty cool. And you know, it's also it's already been curated. So, you know, it should be a pretty friendly experience. So it looks pretty cool to me. It'd be nice if somebody do something similar for the Coco. Yeah, definitely looks nice. All right, our next one is from Tanru Nomad, and it's the Southwest Technical Products 6800-6809 Computer Review and History. Uh, this is a YouTube video. For me, it was particularly enjoyable because uh, back in, in high school in 1981, I think, uh, I played with one of these. So... It was uh, pretty cool. He walks through particularly the 6809 version of the, uh, the Southwest Technical Products computer. It's got the original terminal, original disk drives, and also hits on a, a even smoke signal broadcasting computer, which was basically mm -hmm. just a clone of the Southwest Technical Products computer back in the day. It's, uh, it's an enjoyable video to watch, and, and it's kind of cool to see the predecessor of the, uh, of the color computer. Yeah, uh, that's uh, like I said, it's cool. It's a sort of related technology, at least, you know, a little bit before our times, but uh, still kind of a cool thing and uh, something to be on the on the lookout for if you happen to <laughs> be down at the uh, at the thrift store and you see one of those boxes. You know, <laughs> you might uh, pick it up instead of overlooking it, huh? If you do find one, I want to know where this thrift store is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Wherever it is, I'll drive there. Yeah, I'll fly there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I still remember when you got yours, John. We're on our way down to Coco Fest. That was exciting. <laughs> yeah, pretty cool machines. Our next item, another one from Mr. Jim Gary. We've got uh, his port of Aklabeth, Akalabeth. I'm not sure it's pronounced. It was. It's a game that's pretty famous on the Apple II. So I'm pretty sure there'll be people out there hating me for mispronouncing it. Acalabeth, Acalabeth, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. It's a bit of a, you know, a dungeon adventure kind of game ported from the MSX source uh, by NanoChess to the uh, MC-10 with the MCX expansion cartridge. Looks like it's a work in progress. Pretty cool. 
like all the ones we get from Jim, um, check it out, and uh, it may be a great way to get some more use out of the MC-10. So here's one from, uh, of course, Ed Snyder. Gary Becker and I, meaning Ed, Gary Becker and Ed will be continuing their collaboration beyond and building on the Gimme X project with the creation of a new motherboard for a next-generation Coco. I hope to start development as soon as production starts on the Gimme X, which is imminent. So that's an announcement in of itself. The Gimme X is imminent. This next-generation Coco motherboard will have a, a real silicon 6309 clocked at 5 megahertz. A 68,000 soft CPU, meaning implemented on the FPGA, clocked at 20 megahertz, does 8 megabyte or more of fast RAM, 24-bit RGB DAX. A lot of RGB. <laughs> I don't know if that means if that means 8 bits for each of RG and B, that would be 24 together. I assume that's what he means, not actually 24 bits of each one, because that would be way crazy. <laughs> 16-bit stereo audio DAX, and then VGA, 15 kilohertz RGB, S-video, and composite video. And additional features will almost certainly be added during development. Lots of uh, exuberance about it. You know, so uh, if you're into that, very exciting. Sorry, I know I'm supposed to play like I'm, a, I'm excited about everything. This one does not excite me because it's... Whatever it is, I don't think it's a Coco. <laughs> there, I said it. Um, it's uh, whatever it is. It may be inspired by the Coco or a tribute to the Coco. Um, but, you know, it's something new, and that's fine. Um, but if I want a new computer, it's going to be running Linux, and it's going to have a, an expensive Intel CPU and <laughs> or maybe even a Power 9 or uh, something like that. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Are you guys excited about this project? Like I said, some people are really excited about it. You know, we'll see if it comes out. It might be cool. I'm personally not that excited. If you are, that's great. And if you want to send me hate mail and tell me how stupid I am for not being excited, please, I'd love to see that argument. Doesn't even have to be an argument. I'd love to see that presented to me. But, uh, you know, uh, it's just not my, that's not my hobby. Um, if it's your hobby, that's great. There's the news. So you have a direction to go in. All right, so moving on, we've got uh, from Retro Man Cave, uh, which I don't really know much about that other than it's uh, something on YouTube, but uh, some sort of YouTube, uh, you know, video podcast, so apparently. Creating new Vectrix games in 2019 with Robin Juber. This is called a Retro Tea Break. So some sort of discussion with somebody, Robin Juber, I don't know him. It's talking about building Vectrix games, which, of course, the Vectrix is a 6809-based machine and maybe a cool outlet for learning something about coding uh, on the 6809 or whatever. Or maybe it's just a cool way to spend 10 minutes and listen to somebody else talk. Who knows? But uh, I don't know. Check it out. The Vectrix is a kind of – I roll all Vectrix stuff inbounds on this uh, podcast, at least uh, <laughs> for initial mentioning anyway. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, here's another topic. It could almost be a host discussion from somebody called Hexacore Runner at Atari Age. The topic is, was well, the question, ever give up on a computer hobby? 
says, have you ever woke up one morning wondering why you've been dumping so much time or effort or money into a specific classic computer? Has your interest ever vanished overnight? Variety of responses there. First response was never. <laughs> Further down, there's one that says, afraid so. There's even one in here from Atari Leaf who says, I was like that with a Tandy Coco. So you may want to check that out. I've had this style of feeling. Uh, sometimes it's gone past, um, with other machines at least. Well, what about you guys? You ever wake up one time and say, what the heck am I doing with all this stuff? Sometimes this is um, easier to discuss than others, and right now may not be the easiest time for me to discuss it either. But <laughs> I think it's the kind of thoughts that people have sometimes. I think it's perfectly human and normal. I don't think it means you've betrayed the hobby or anything like that. If you do have to take a break, then take it. Hopefully we'll still be here when you get back. <laughs> Can't make any guarantees, but, you know, we probably will. <laughs> uh, here's another one from Sheldon McDonald, my prototype mini controller for the Cocos. Let's see, which is not the same thing as what he had before. Does <laughs> uh, my prototype mini controller for the Cocos or any first thoughts or works well for games like Downland? Yeah, it's a different little controller. Like I said, Sheldon's been busy, having fun. Uh, looks cool to me. I like the shape and the color. He's talking about, um, uh, I think he's basically talking about having an adapter where you could plug it into one controller into two, both joystick ports so you could have two buttons on a Coco 1 or 2. So that's kind of a cool idea. Uh, what you could even do with, with an adapter. Maybe we should look into that. <laughs> so a pretty cool idea. Uh, it looks cool to me. Thank you, Sheldon. All right, moving on. So this is a neat one. <laughs> so YouTube, do you guys check out this video? Uh, so this is a cool technology. So they've got a TV, came from JVC, and I'm not sure what year it is, but the inside of the TV is a small black and white tube, a CRT, and then snapped over the front of the CRT, they have a color LCD. And so the effect is it's a color television. So the LCD plays, and then the, the CRT is effectively just a backlight. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's, it's cool, it's neat that it worked at all sort of thing. Uh, I enjoyed watching the video. Maybe you will too. For years, air fresheners have been used to hide unpleasant odors. But until now, your choices have always been wildflowers, potpourri, country spices, citrus, and other floral derivatives. That's all about to change with new RetroFresh from Jackson & Jackson. RetroFresh is a walk down memory lane. Each fragrant mist smells like your favorite retro computers. Salmon patties for dinner? Now it's the scent of printer ribbons, Apple IIs, and TRS-80s. Too many cats in the house? Now it's just the scent of heating power supplies, newly opened diskettes, and warm CRTs. Uncle Bob, use your bathroom after the chili cook-off. <laughs> Replace that offensive odor with the aroma of new computers. New RetroFresh comes in three scents. Apple II and TRS-80s. Warm power supply and CRTs. And new computer. It's like a VCF in a can. New RetroFresh. Free yourself from the floral prison of other air fresheners. Jackson & Jackson is an air freshener company. 
Since 1994, Cloud9 has made cool stuff for your color computer. Now Cloud9 is proud to announce the 2MB Triad Plus Memory Expansion Board. The Triad Plus works in two ways. Purchase just the Triad Plus board to expand your Color Computer 3 from 128K to 512K of RAM. Or add the new Protector Plus MMU to access the full 2 megabytes of static RAM aboard the Triad Plus. And the Protector Plus MMU utilizes full buffering to protect your CPU. Unlike previous 2 megabyte memory expansions for the Coco 3, the Triad Plus operates seamlessly without the need for special patches, configuration, or workarounds. Games like Donkey Kong Remix and Sierra Adventure games simply work without hassle. And the Triad Plus will reduce your Coco's power consumption and heat generation. The Triad Plus and Protector Plus MMU, only from the innovative engineering of Cloud9. Cool stuff for your color computer. Visit cloud9tech.com for details. Okay, for our next item, Walter Zambodi, Devastated long-term open VCC project falls short. There was a lengthy um, discussion within the TRS-80 uh, mailing list about this. He's Walter's been working on this a while. He came to the results after he started adding 6309 support and things like that, something that was never in the original VCC, that he felt performance wasn't where he wanted it. He, you know, The great thing about the project was it was multi-platform, unlike the regular VCC emulator, uh, which was Windows only. I had some interest in this because it meant you could run it natively under Linux. Actually, Tormod was providing some builds for, for Linux people. It did require a special libra uh, patch library and things like that in order for it to work. But but it was working and good progress was being made. So I'm not exactly sure what Walter's going to do at this point. It sounds like I don't know if he's completely dropped it. I haven't seen any updates as far as a, a newer version. But, you know, he's put a ton of work into this. One of the things he mentions within his comments is that he has a, like a whole testing suite that he uses when he develops with this emulator. And I would, if he does end the project, which, you know, I think it's good to have choices and options in the community. I hope some of the other work that he's put into this will be released. I think any type of testing suite is, is something of value. So we'll see where that goes. I, I'm not sure if any of you guys have tried OpenVCC or not, but um, it, I, I didn't think it was a bad project. I, I just think it's a, there's a lot for one person to do. Sure, I hope that it doesn't kill the project. Uh, it's included here, um, you know, because basically the basic story I was focused on was, uh, how, you know, like I said, he had it working. Um, maybe wasn't satisfied with some of the performance, and so he thought to take some of the emulation bits of the see some of the instructions or whatever and, and change the emulation from being written in C to being written in assembly, which, you know, traditionally people would think that that would tend to make it for better performance. And then of course, what happened was that he actually got significantly worse performance, at least in some of his cases and most of his cases. I'm not sure if that was, well, I guess it was surprising to him. I'm not sure if it was surprising to everyone or not, I know as someone working in the field, shall we say, I definitely have heard for years that, uh, oh, the, the compilers are so smart now, you can't do better by hand. Not 100% that sure in every case, but it might be this This would lend some credibility to it being true, um, in the, at least in the generic case. <laughs> so a bit of a hard lesson to learn if you put a lot of work into turning your C code into assembly code, but... This totally was interesting to me. And like I said, I hope it doesn't kill the project for Walter. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. Okay, our next news item from Roger Taylor. 
let's be honest here, would you like me to turn your TV into a Coco 3? So for folks that follow some of Roger's work, you know, he's done some work on the old Altera DE0 Nano where he's recreated a Coco 3 in FPGA. I think he also ported that over to the Mist product, which is another type of device that can emulate old uh, old computers. And it sounds like he wants to do the same, but using um, software on a Roku. I would be very interested to see how you do that. I know apps can be made for the Roku, but emulate an entire computer, that I, I wouldn't know how you would go about that. Maybe he's uh, partnering with somebody or working with somebody, or maybe there's some information out there to help. But I did a little bit of searching. I didn't see any other type of emulated uh, computer app available for the Roku, so this would be interesting. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't fully know how it works, and if it would be, if it would literally be running code on your little Roku box, because I mean, uh, you know, right there by your TV, or if it would somehow be doing like a, you know, running it on a on a server out in the cloud somewhere, and and just displaying the video on your on your machine or, or what? I have no idea. If that intrigues you, then uh, reach out to Roger and see what he's doing. I'm sure he'll be happy to tell you all about it. Our next item is from uh, Jenny List at Hackaday. The legacy of the floppy still looms over Windows. So they were, <clears throat> I read the article, they were talking about basically the read cache that the floppy, legacy floppy drives had back in the day. And uh, they did discuss a write cache. And I guess on the floppies, there was no write cache, but there was about a two-second read cache. And it goes to talk about, the history of that and the legacy around how Microsoft was one who set that based on how fast someone could eject a floppy disk out of a drive and switch it. And because of that two seconds, I guess that is carried on to newer devices, John. I don't know. I tried yeah, to follow I mean, that. It, it almost sounds like there's, there's still a two second read cache that's used today. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, Typical for cache stuff to expire at some point that probably is still doing, it's probably still following in the same basic algorithm it's followed forever. In doing so, it's probably using some of the same defined constants that it has had forever and kind of in the, if, it, if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of category. So it hasn't been changed. How this little piece of DOS file system cache management made its way all the way into the NT kernel and, and beyond, I don't know, but. It sounds like that's what happened. Yep. Our next item is for is uh, from Gitano Denardi at Harvard Business Review. Since it's coming from Harvard Business Review, you know, I would follow this for sure. Why you should work less and spend more time on hobbies. Um, <laughs> when I first saw this, I thought of Jim Gary right, right away. Now, I'm not saying he's not working as much as he's doing his hobby, but he certainly does spend quite a bit of time um, doing his MC10 programming. I remember him talking about that before. That is uh, um, therapeutic for him, I think he said. And uh, it, it's a really good article. It, it kind of breaks it down into different different concepts and things like that with why you would want to do this. Uh, I wish I had more time, unfortunately. You know, my work has been, you know, we all go through waves like this. I know, Mike, you you certainly have. But uh, work is, work and personal things just don't leave me enough time for the hobby as much as I would like. Hopefully that will change when I can retire, whenever that will be. 
but it's a good article. Yeah, no, I yeah, thought it was cool. Let's say it's because of the obvious um, <laughs> laziness factor or whatever that appealed to me. Um, I <laughs> yeah, don't know how much less work. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you could turn this into your boss and say, well, I'm going to work less, but still keeps in the checks. I'm not sure if it'll work or not, but it does say Harvard business review. So, it, you know, it might communicate, uh, it might be a good way to communicate with the uh, certain uh, management types. <laughs> I mean, the bigger, I, I think there was another point in there too, which I, I didn't mention, but it almost sounds like they're making the case that if you spend more time on something you enjoy with your hobbies, that it will actually improve the way you work. I know the title's a little misleading, but I kind of got that out of the article as well. I think that's probably true, at least to a point. I think keeping it in the right zone uh, might be more might be difficult in the long run. <laughs> but uh, as long as you're still conscientious about your work, depending on, you know, if you're doing piecework and you have to do 35 items a day or whatever, you probably don't want to divert from that too much. But if you're doing longer term projects where you, your day-to-day schedule is a little more flexible, uh, sliding in a, a f- an hour or two here and there on something that, you know, relaxes your mind and, and gives you some creative boost might be helpful. I don't know. Uh, if you get fired, it's not my fault. <laughs> All right. Uh, next news item for Matthew Galt advice. Collapse OS is an open source operating system for the post-apocalypse, and I want to add world to there. <laughs> This was a great article. I'll tell you, for any survivalists out there, more or less what this is teaching you is when you're scavenging for things, uh, you know, when you can come up, uh, you know, to the surface, depending on how bad things get, you are going to find an abundance of um, Z80-based devices, whether they're old video game systems, calculators, computers, and it's actually an OS that you can run on those devices, and in some cases... There's specific drivers to take advantage of unique features for some of these old uh, these old devices. So it's, it's a longer read, but um, I, I thought it was very interesting. I don't know if you guys had a chance to check that out. Yeah, I thought it was cool. It's just the the whole idea, the whole premise is, you know, maybe a little silly, but uh, I don't know. I'm probably not the only one that's uh, clearly not the only one that's ever had that thought of. Uh, what if we did wake up and all our computers, uh, all our modern computer infrastructure was gone or whatever? Could I cobble something together out of my retro stash and, you know, then be able to control the satellites that are trying to destroy the earth or, or, <laughs> <laughs> or whatever? Um, it's, uh, so it was uh, a little bit comical for me, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's it's a cool idea. I mean, it's something to do. Yeah, yeah we just have to find ways to make everything EMP pulse proof. <laughs> yeah. And then our last uh, news item is from three old tech dudes. That you know, if you add one more, that could be us. And um, <laughs> they're, they're they're a YouTube. Uh, looks like they have a YouTube channel. I have never seen them before. Um, why did Nathan buy a TRS eighty? That is a good question. The video showed him and and two other guys with an old uh, Coco two melted keyboard. In case you guys are interested. And they were just talking about their experience with it. They picked up a uh, cartridge, and quite a bit of time was spent demoing the uh, Spectrum Audio Analyzer or Audio Spectrum Analyzer cartridge. But they they kind of just talked about the TRS-80. It looked like they were actually Commodore people, so I'm surprised their hands weren't burning as they were touching the keyboard. <laughs> but uh, it's well, just it's an interesting totally video. Wonderful. Yeah, you know, anytime <laughs> you see a, a YouTube video or some 
interest in the TRS-80 color computer. It's kind of nice. So, again, it's it's new folks, someone that I haven't seen. I, I haven't seen anything else of theirs. Might be an interesting video to look at. Yeah. Uh, it's cool to see extra attention on the Coco. Hard to know would that have happened if we hadn't had some of the uh, Coco media activity that we've had over the past few years. Um, uh, I think we have br- brought a little more awareness to the Coco than might have otherwise existed. Well, of course, it could just be they could have pulled anything off the stack, and that's what they pulled off next. Who knows? But uh, they they were using the the audio spectrum analyzer. Yeah, yes. they were, and, and actually, yeah. the um, you know they they did talk about the price. It was a sixty dollar eBay acquisition, I think, is what it was. So it's for a Coco two that works. Um, you know, it, it had its you know the the uh, the yellowing of the case, but the uh, but it worked, and that's about market price, I'm guessing. But yeah, they they did. They spent some time kind of discussing how you can hook up these old computers up to your, you know, stereo and actually get a visual output on it. They sure. did go over a couple more things. They they were talking about how fast things load. Um, they were you know kind of discussing jokingly comparing it to some Apple products, and uh, well, of course that's the benefit of cartridges. You know, it's it's instant. <laughs> well, that's definitely true. Yep. Uh, I was just going to say that, that that audio spectrum analyzer, um, that is without a doubt Steve Bjork's best game. <laughs> <laughs> okay. See, that is the end of our uh, news segment. So why don't we, uh, with my thud of a joke, why don't we uh, take a little break and uh, we'll be back with some feedback. Is this you? Oh my god, I've got 40 pages to print! Tired of waiting on a slow serial-attached printer? End the waiting with Blue Streak Ultima, the ultimate serial-to-parallel adapter. Wow, I'll have this report ready in time for the meeting! Just connect Blue Streak Ultima to your Coco's built-in serial port and connect the other end to any printer with a 36-pin Centronics-compatible parallel printer port. Blue Streak Ultima works with any version Coco. Seven switchable baud rates, 300 to 19.2. Select the desired baud rate with the easy-to-use selector knob. No jumpers, no hassle, just faster printing. Try it on your system for 30 days, risk-free. If you're not totally satisfied with the performance of Blue Streak Ultima, return it for a full refund. Blue Streak Ultima comes with a one-year warranty and costs just $39.95. Blue Streak Ultima, the ultimate serial-to-parallel converter. If you own a Coco, you need to visit us at CMD Micro Computer Services Limited. We're your TRS-80 specialists in Canada. Software from Adventure International, Computerware, Tom Mix, Med Systems, Spectral, Quickly Pair, Programmers Guild, Cognitech, Prism, Datasoft, and more. Plus, we offer a full line of disk drives, Epson printers, Mark Data keyboard kits, Wyco and Craft joysticks, books and magazines. Come to CMD Micro Computer Systems Limited, Edmonton, Alberta. Okay, welcome back. Now it's time for some feedback. Uh, first, a little correction. Last month, uh, Boise um, had a little faux pas, slip of the tongue, and uh, he referenced Jeremy Spiller uh, instead of uh, who was um, a extraordinary programmer uh, of the Coco, but uh, in re- used Jeremy Spiller in place of Steve Spiller, who is um, one of the uh, contributors to the Coco VGA project. I apologize for that mistake. All right, moving on. Um, So we had our topic last month about 
I forget the way I phrased it now, but yeah, is a is a normal cocoa good enough nowadays, or do they all have to be tricked out and uh, <laughs> either either tricked out, or, you know, either trailer queens with the uh, pristine finish or whatever, or do they all have to be tricked out with four hundred dollars worth of uh, upgrades on your seventy dollar cocoa? Got a lot of feedback. Most of it, uh, well. I don't know. I, I think we're going to represent it pretty well. With the, we've got three items that are all sort of related. First item we'll say comes from um, Mr. George Phillips. And George says, uh, quote, um, enhancements were not uncommon back when the machines were current. So that seems reasonable. And he says, but at some point, the replacement and enhancement gets so intense, I really wonder if they like the machine in the first place. <laughs> Which hits it on the head for me. I definitely, uh, I like to see the upgrades and the things that kind of are what I call life support, you know, things where you can get a video output or, or storage options for the Cocoa or whatever. When you start ripping out CPUs, I mean, you put in a 6309 is a, a little different, but ripping out half the motherboard or, or covering up with another machine where you can't even uh, close the case anymore or whatever. <laughs> It starts to make you wonder, did did you like the machine in the first place, I guess, is a, is a really good way to put it. All right, thank you, George. Moving on. Now, this is a different opinion. This comes from uh, Mr. James Jones. James says, um, I only care about Cocoa compatibility as a sadly necessary step to bootstrap to a decent 6809 or 6309 Nitrous 9 system. <laughs> so, basically, James is just after it for the OS. Basically, you could throw down any machine uh, that that could boot up Nitrous 9, and James would be pretty happy with it, I think. And so that's kind of like uh, Coco Schmoco, I don't care. <laughs> kind of putting his words in the mouth there, but uh, it's a it's a different perspective. But uh, it makes sense, you know, if you if you really are into the OS part, that's what you care about, right? And so you're going to want whatever runs the OS the best you can. All right, and our final feedback item comes from uh, Mr. Brian Blake. He kind of covers some of the same bases, uh, particularly like George did or whatever, but as a, the end of his uh, message, he comes in with, um, we are in dire, and that's all capitalized, and so we are in dire need of software. <laughs> There's really no reason to buy much of the hardware that's out there unless software is written for it. That also is a really good point. You know, like I said, people show up and they announce, oh, I'm, I'm building this new hardware thing. And a bunch of people say, hey, take my money, whatever. And then there's no software for it uh, or limited software, just basically demo software. What good is it? It's a uh, hardware with no software is a brick. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I do hope we can see uh, more software development. If you are hot for some of this new hardware, that's great. Buy some of it and then write some software for it and, uh, you know, make a market out of it. I think that would make a lot of sense. I don't know. That's kind of the way I see it. Uh, what do you think? Uh, feel, feel free to send uh, feedback at org. Let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook. Send us a tweet on Twitter. Whatever you like. We'd love to hear from you. That'll end our feedback segment. And uh, we'll be back. We'll host discussion. New from Double Density Software, it's Double DOS 2. Now use 35, 40, or 80-track double or single-sided drives, all on one system, all at the same time. 
supports all regular disk commands, and DoubleDOS 2 is totally transparent to your basic programs. You can get up to 158 granules on a disk using an 80-track drive. DoubleDOS 2 adds new commands to basic. BOD to change the BOD rate on a serial port. Track to set 35, 36, 40, or 80 tracks. Peter to print your directory to a printer. Date, enter the month, day, and year as an extension to your program, and many more. We guarantee this program will work with all 35, 40, or 80 track drives. Just $29.95, 64K required. Double Den City Software, Denton, Texas. Upgrade your color computer with a Keytronic keyboard. The Keytronic keyboard is a simple-to-install replacement keyboard for the TRS-80 color computer from the world's leading keyboard manufacturer for computer terminals, Keytronic. Featuring high-quality, full-motion keys, sculptured low-profile key tops, home row location pips, and high spring force on the clear and break keys to prevent entry error. The Keytronic keyboard looks and works like a keyboard should, with no sticking or jamming. Most users experience a 15 to 20% higher data input rate with Keytronic keyboards compared to the standard color computer keyboard. Step up to a professional quality keyboard for just $89.95. Keytronic, the responsive keyboard company. All right, Coco Cruisers, welcome back for this month's post discussion. Uh, this is one I picked up on Atari Age. Someone posted a topic asking about the importance of books and manuals and documentation. I thought it might be a good one to discuss. And and so, you know, just to lay it out, I mean, I'm sure we all have referenced books and, or manuals either because uh, they came with our cocoa or because we couldn't figure out how to do something and <laughs> we went and found a PDF online or, or whatnot. Uh, I guess that's the first part of it, you know, it's, uh, collecting those docs for archival purposes, it's certainly important, and, you know, people getting them scanned and whatever else. Um, I don't think anybody would deny that we want as much of that as possible, or at least of the important things, which might be a, a matter of debate. Um, <laughs> what about the physical docs? Do you collect them? What do you do with them? They do take up some space. They, they sometimes will weigh down your bookshelves or whatever. Do you think these things are important as a collector? When you collect them, you know, how much attention do you pay to to how they look? You know, that's kind of you know, the equivalent of a yellowing plastic case. Do you look at a frayed binder or, or a coffee stain on the on the uh, cover or whatever? Does that make a difference to you? Yeah, I, don't know, I guess it's just kind of open-ended um, discussion point that's laying it out. So um, anyone have any thoughts they'd like to start? There is a collectability component to it for me, and I would like them to be in better condition. And then you have other ones that are just for reference, and I don't mind so much if the condition is not great, because for me, still, I prefer looking at printed manuals. I, even if I get digital copies of some documentation when I'm sitting in front of the Coco or doing something else, and, and it's not even this hobby. It could be other hobbies. I don't know. I just prefer a, a you know, even a small section of the print. For me, it's just a little bit easier to navigate. Yeah, I definitely agree there. It's nice to have the, the physical book uh, or manual or whatever. When I'm looking at a PDF, if I really need to study it, I tend to go and print four or five pages out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Maybe it's the the 40-year-old or 50-year-old eyesight. It's just sometimes easier just to be able to put the paper closer to your face. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, no, I do. I definitely like... To, to pick up books, especially, you know, ones that I haven't seen before or ones that are a little hard to find. 
especially ones with a little bit esoteric topics, topics, uh, you know, programming books that aren't just about typing in basic, <laughs> um, that sort of thing. And I collect uh, books not just on the Cocoa, on a variety of uh, computer, finished computer topics, uh, different programming languages, different uh, CPUs or whatever. And some of them are manuals or, or um, product literature, that sort of thing, for the for the parts, data sheets. Those are all pretty cool to have. And, you know, the condition is important to me in terms of is it physically in good shape? You know, can I throw it in, on the desk and not have it fall apart? <laughs> or if it falls off the desk, is it not going to split into multiple pieces or whatever? The three-hole punch stuff, uh, which was fairly common for a lot of things, you know, there's always there's always somebody who ripped the, ripped it completely out of the punch, <laughs> you know, so you can't put it back in the punch that way unless you put on those little round reinforcers, <laughs> whatever, that sucks. So, John, um, let me ask you, for, for people that are collecting like yourself, there's the personal aspect of it where you're, it's just for you, something that you have, and then there's the component where if it's not really available in the community and you want to share it, have you ever come across a time when you may have had a pristine manual or book, but it didn't lend itself to easy archival because of scanning without having to somehow damage the binding or doing something else? And, and what do you do in those cases? Yeah, well, it's a good question. Now you, you're calling me out. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I would never destroy a book to get it scanned and put up. But I don't feel morally obligated to do so, especially when I just paid 60 bucks for a book or something. <laughs> um, so it kind of depends. Um, I think uh, I might have a, one or two books that are not readily available in scans or whatever. I don't think any of them are hot on anyone's list. I'm not going to go through any of them. I'm not going to name them just because uh, I don't want to be a, get a bunch of hate mail over it. <laughs> but, <laughs> Um, so that's a good question. You know, if you do pick up that one rare book, especially if you picked it up and, and you paid 40, 50, whatever, maybe a hundred bucks on a, for a book, a rare book, uh, what obligation do you have to scan it? Yeah, it's a tough one because if it's something that's not available anymore, there's there's nothing, I don't want to say protecting it. I, I don't want to get into the legalities of it. Yeah, it's a tough one, but I, I agree. I, you know, I guess I would be the same way without sounding selfish is that, yeah, if there was a very collectible book and it was going to damage it in some way to try to reproduce it or archive it digitally, I, I probably wouldn't do it either. I, I guess I'd say it depends on the book, like you were saying, John. If so, if something was really important and valuable to the community, I'd probably do it. But if it was, uh, if it's just something that's maybe tangentially related or or not that critical to the community, I, I wouldn't do it. Uh, I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of of scanning things and uh, getting them up to Coco Color Computer Archive, and I've done that a lot. I actually went through all of my documentation back in March or April, got it all put into file boxes. I managed to fit it all into four file boxes, and I'm not talking about big books. But so much of the color computer documentation was, you know, on two or three sheets of printed paper or just a little uh, eight and a half by five, you know, software document or, or something on a, a piece of hardware. It's been really valuable to be, to be able to go to the color computer archive and pull down obscure things. And I've so I've benefited from that enough that I try to go out of my way to scan as much as I possibly can 
and uh, upload it to the uh, archive because you come across really obscure things like some little uh, video adapter, composite video adapter, and somebody doesn't know where to hook it up, and it's it's right there. So I guess I'm a semi-collector. Uh, I don't really worry about being a, in a pristine shape. I mean, I want to use it, but obviously I've got really nice copies of the documentation, and I, I, I take good care of them and, and uh, keep them in binders or, or have them on a shelf. Or, uh, like I said, I've got file boxes with uh, – I've got everything alphabetized. So <laughs> if, if you're looking for something, let me know. I'll see if I have it. Thank you. Bring up some good points. And, you know, I'm just thinking about this, too. Maybe there's – for people that do uh, archive things like yourself, maybe there are some good procedures and things where you can safely – and documentation that's in a hard, you know, depending on the type of um, media that it's on, you know, with regards to hard, hard cover, things like that, where for folks that don't know how to do it without damaging, maybe somebody like yourself can help out with those type of things or at least share some information on it. Or maybe in today's world with cell phone technology, I hear that's a big thing overseas where a lot of bookstores and stuff, they don't want you to bring cell phones in because it's, it's so easy now with certain apps to make very clean copies of printed pages and maybe even reproduce it to the point where you don't want to buy the, uh, buy the item. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that could be, Oh, I mean, I think there are book scanners and such setups that you can buy and like on um, Amazon or whatever. I don't have one. Like I said, I toy with the idea. I, I have a couple of books that might be worth scanning. Not my highest priority, I guess is, is where it comes down, but, it's painful um, to think how much stuff is actually lost forever. Yeah. Well, so like like I said, I mean, I do have some boxes of, um, that you know, I got years ago in one of those come and get all my cocoa stuff kind of uh, <laughs> deals yeah. that you used to hear once in a while. And somebody had a bunch of binders with like photocopied, you know, documentation of this and that. And hard, it's hard to go through partly because, it's not particularly well organized, and then it is sat in the basements and whatever. And so you start flipping through it, and before long, you've got a runny nose because there's so much dust and crap that gets in your face. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and like I say, it's not it's not like original books and that sort of stuff. It's just random photocopies, and most of it probably is already scanned. And but who knows? There could be that one thing in there um, that I'm. Hoarding and not giving to the community because I'm an evil person. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe one day when I retire, I'll get more of that stuff out. Now, hopefully that won't be forever, but uh, it's not going to be tomorrow. Uh, for, did your Coco Tuner come with documentation? Uh, a little. I probably uh, could scan that. Uh, I don't. Yeah. Uh, it's um, It's not... It's not real helpful in terms of, like, if you're trying to figure out how to replicate it or anything like that. No. <laughs> I mean, just the instructions, because someday somebody's going to come across one of those cartridges with no docs. And That's just, true. Like, just yep. having those couple of pieces of documentation will help them be able to use it. That's true. I should get that out. Thanks for making me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, no, no it, it, it's not to berate anybody. It's just to say that those things are useful to the community, you know, keeping that archive of that stuff. And, and obviously if uh, I'm perfectly happy to scan something for somebody, if, uh, if they don't want to do it or don't have a scanner and, you know, I'll take good care of your documentation, get it back to you. Any thoughts, Neil? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm just listening to you guys. They brought up some good points here. Um, no, I, I definitely think it's important. Uh, I also have uh, contributed to the uh, Cocoa Archive, scanned some uh, distal manuals and such uh, that weren't there. I need to go through more of my stuff as well. Um, but no, I, uh, I I like to have uh, you know my my bookshelves uh, weighed down and swaying. You know, um, more resource <laughs> the better. <laughs> so it's uh, it's good stuff. Well, that's funny. I know Neil and I were bidding like crazy at Cocoa Fest on disto manuals that we didn't have because there was a big yeah. slew of them, and we actually got into a bidding war on a couple of them. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but it was funny because we ended up having uh, exchanging some of those that we had duplicates of, and. Uh, so, and I've actually purchased stuff on eBay that are just documentation. Like, uh, I'm thinking one I, I picked up for some Star Kits documentation and uh, a stylograph, complete styro stylograph documentation. And, uh, That's cool. You know, got that scanned and put out on the, the archive. So, there's some fairly important pieces of software out there that just kind of, you know, you can't find anything about them. So, yeah, no, I definitely encourage everyone <laughs> to do that sort of thing. I'm, uh, I welcome being berated a bit about uh, not having done it as much as I could. Um, maybe I'll do better. It definitely is something that's valuable to have, especially, well, is there a priority of things? Is, you know, do you need to know all the escape key sequences for for random software? Probably so, depending on, since we're talking about the era where there were no menus <laughs> stuff, so that is kind of important. Stuff like well, service manuals and things with schematics and stuff like that is definitely important to have if you start having hardware that dies. Um, yes. Sometimes you can trace out uh, schematics and that sort of thing, but sometimes it's, uh, it's sometimes it's at least more difficult than you'll be willing to do if it's not a, uh, somehow important to you. <laughs> it's important to, to to cover the docs as well as possible if you. If you find original documentation, at least snatch it up, even if you're not going to photocopy it or scan it, so at least it doesn't go in the trash. Because that's probably one of the easiest things for people to throw in the trash. This is just a book, right? It's just an old piece of paper. You can just throw it away. If if you can save those, then do so. And if uh, if you've got too much documentation somehow, then uh, let me know. Maybe we'll work something out. Even if I don't scan it immediately, maybe I'll scan it eventually. <laughs> or yeah. we'll get it to Mike. <laughs> yeah. um, but, I mean, I would think, yeah, it's probably easier to throw out a box of old books than just throw out a box with plastic and circuit boards in it, uh, which is probably why you find a lot of bare machines, not just Cocos, but Ataris and Commodores and whatever. Um, you know, machines with no books, sometimes machines with no power cables, right? So (laughs) some things are easier to throw away than others. Um, and that's, that's why we end up with things lost. Somebody had all this old software and had somebody had the docs with it back in the day. Where is it all now? So if you can get a hold of it, definitely do so. Like I said, if you can scan it, please do so. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not a great example of this. Um, I'll try to do better, but uh, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do better. So we're not heard from. Boyd, are you still out there? Yeah, I have some thoughts. Go ahead. So there will always be a need to uh, to have physical paper copies of books and magazines so that when you're on the throne, you can... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I keep a couple of rainbows near the uh, the throne in my office. 
good to reminisce. You know, you're sitting there, you're thinking about things, and you go through all rainbows. But no, seriously, I, I think that for things like magazines and books, you know, it's not like we have rare books that only have one or two copies in the world. All of the books that we have in our possession, there are multiple copies. Somewhere, someone out there is going to have already scanned it, or the likelihood of it already being scanned is high. So, I think as as we go forward in this hobby, we're going to find less and less things to scan because now that we have websites like ColorComputerArchive.com that catalog and, and keep all of this in one place, we have a repository where all of our books and magazines and so forth are scanned. So we can go there and get digital copies. As far as keeping physical copies, I do like to keep pristine copies of books that are as pristine as I can get for nostalgia's sake, for, you know, just seeing them on the bookshelf. There's nothing like going and picking up a book from your bookshelf out of the blue one day and just, you know, just thumbing through it and reading it and getting inspired about something. Also, when it comes to magazines, case in point, what I did with the Rainbow Preservation Project, you know, which is still not quite done yet, by the way, but where you get a full set of magazines, get them bound real nice, and donate them to a library where they'll be kept in perpetuity. So that's another option for people who want to preserve the, the physical media uh, out there. So that's my thoughts on that. To me, I guess it's an important part of the hobby because it's uh, it's it's the history. And you, well, do, get, right. you do get inspired and you, you're amazed at, I never knew this existed back in 1983. Or I never and, heard and, you know, of this part, product. Part of retro computing also is, you know, the retro media, right? You know, we still have books and pages we can flip through and, and it's one thing to see it on a screen in the PDF. It's another thing to hold that book that you might have held 30 years ago in your hands again. Uh, it's pretty special to have the, the physical media around, I think. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, it definitely enhances the overall retro or nostalgia or whatever feeling for me. You know, some of them, the reference books, especially on the, the, the less known, lesser known um, bits of hardware or whatever, you know, if you had a service manual for, say, the Digisector or something, that'd be, you know, really cool to flip through. Um, I don't have one, by the way, but if you do, <laughs> let me know. I've got um, two. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> um, you know, those kind of things are cool to flip through, and they might be useful just, you know, like I said, for servicing something. It's funny, sometimes you can get ideas from flipping through that for your own projects things that you might build or, or sometimes ways to do software that might be different that you didn't understand or, or know before. Uh, I don't have any particular thing to cite there, but trust me, it's possible. It's useful in those sorts of technical ways of kind of plowing through a project or, or whatever, but it's also just cool, like you said, to have an old magazine you can flip through and see a few ads and look at, look at that girl's hair from the from 1983 or, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's cool from the nostalgia perspective of putting yourself back in the day, you know, putting yourself back in the, you know, you're in the seventh grade again and, uh, you know, you're trying to figure out how to write Pong or, or whatever in basic. <laughs> it's kind of cool to, to have that touch too. I think we all agree. Yeah, I think we all agree that the docs are important to save. Uh, definitely, if you have physical docs within your grasp, uh, don't let them get away. If you can scan them, God bless you, please do. Uh, if you just don't have the means to scan them, uh, consider getting in touch with the 
with Mike or uh, you know, you know, even even me. That since I told you I didn't scan things, but if you give them to me, I'll try to make sure Mike gets it, or I'll make sure Mike gets it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anything to save the stuff, uh, and like I said, scans are important. But uh, the physical stuff is important, too. Don't let it get away. Even if you don't want it, I'm sure somebody will buy it on eBay. All right, well, let's draw this one to a close. We'll take another break, and then we'll be back with the rest of the show. Is your TRS-80 Model 3 or 4 suffering from keyboard fatigue? Do you have to press keys more than once to get a response? Maybe you have keys that don't work at all. Original keyboards are expensive and difficult to find. Plaid Vest Software has the solution. New Key 80. The new Key 80 Duo Joy allows you to connect a modern PS2 or USB keyboard to your TRS-80 Model 3 or 4. Plus, it features an Atari-compatible joystick port that works with most TRS-80 games. New Key 80 fits easily inside of your TRS-80, and you can still keep your original keyboard connected. It works with most PC keyboards. Enjoy fast, accurate key response, native TRS-80 key repeat, and it handles special keys independently for amazing compatibility. A fully working keyboard is essential to operating your TRS-80. Stop suffering with a flaky keyboard. Visit www.newkey80.com to order yours today. That's www.newkey80.com. The New Key 80 Duo Joy from PlaidVest Software. Looking for the best service, best selection, and best prices for your color computer shopping needs? Coco Pro. At Coco Pro, we bring you the best value for your Coco shopping dollar. We carry a wide variety of new hardware products at prices too low to advertise. Gently used hardware products with a full 30-day warranty, as well as something you won't find anywhere else. Gently used software at incredible savings from 30 to 80% off retail value. Easy on your wallet, easy on the convenience. Our inventory changes daily and contains at least 120 of your favorite Coco software titles at all times. All are legitimate copies with full documentation. There's only one place for the best service, the best selection, and the best prices. Coco Pro. This month in Coco History. Welcome to This Month in Coco History, where we explore events in the life of our favorite home computer. I'm Boise Pete, and this month we reach back 33 years to October 1986 in Princeton, New Jersey. On the 17th through the 19th of that month, Rainbow held the Princeton Rainbow Fest at the Hyatt Regency Princeton. It was only a few months after the announcement and release of the Tandy Color Computer 3 and the first fest where the new Coco 3 appeared. Excitement was on the show floor as attendees discussed the new computer and its features. A special event was held on Saturday the 18th at 6.30 p.m. A roundtable discussion titled The Design, Development, and Marketing of the Color Computer 3 featured Rainbow's Lonnie Falk, Radio Shack's Barry Thompson and Mark Siegel, and game programmers Steve Bjork and Dale Lear. Lear was a last-minute replacement for Greg Zumwalt, who was originally scheduled to attend. The roundtable discussion went on for over an hour, with the participants discussing the new Coco 3, its capabilities, its wider availability, and the potential for new applications and games. Lonnie gave the audience the opportunity to ask questions, and Dan Downard scurried around the room with the microphone to capture them. Fallsoft recorded the event and would make a cassette of the roundtable available for purchase later. A digitized version of that audio is available today on ColorComputerArchive.com. And that's this month in Coco History. What a gorgeous night. 
Harvey, I called the exterminator for you. Exterminator? Yeah, I heard you telling your friends that your TRS-80 has mice. Mice? No, no, no. I was talking about the mice, the M1SE from Bartlett Labs. So there's no mice? No, it's the Model 1 system expander. It adds all kinds of great new capabilities to your TRS-80. That's a relief. It lets you connect an SVGA monitor, Ethernet, a joystick. All my programs can fit on a compact flash drive. I'll call and cancel the exterminator. Hold on a second, Madge. Don't cancel. I think we might have owls. The Model 1 System Expander from Bartlett Labs. Get more information at bartlettlabs.com. Okay, Coco Cruisers. So we've got um, something maybe a little different this time. Uh, we're we're going to have an interview, um, but uh, it's going to be with somebody uh, that you already know a little bit about. <laughs> so Mr. Boise Pete, of course, is, uh, he's been one of our regular hosts for some time now. Never gave him a, a big introduction. Uh, kind of thought, uh, probably originally thought most people kind of knew who he was, and maybe people already know who he is to some degree. But you know, this hobby's been around for a long time, and uh, despite the uh, the more recent introductions of uh, some more members of the community in the, over the past few years, um, there are still some of us who've been around a while and uh, have a history and maybe had some contributions to the the state of the Cocoa Art, shall we say. <laughs> so we thought it would be a good opportunity to uh, have a talk uh, to Boise and uh, delve in a little bit more to his background and uh, expose some of that to people who maybe don't know him, Can give a, a little background information on the hobby as a, as a whole and on Boise in particular. Let me start out with, of course, uh, welcome uh, Mr. Boise Pete. Hello. Hey guys, nice to be here. Good, good. And then uh, with us, of course, uh, of course, I'm John Linville. Uh, we've got uh, Mr. Neil Blanchard. Hello, Neil. Hello, everyone. And uh, Mike Rowan. Hello, Mike. Hello. Welcome to the show, Bozy. <laughs> and of course, Mr. Ron Klein. Hello, Ron. Hi. Hi, everybody. Very good. So, um, Boise, you know, you've uh, you've been on, uh, shall we say, the other side of the mic <laughs> for a few other folks. You kind of know how we do this. We're pretty low-key. As usual, I think we'd like to start off with the, kind of the default question of, uh, you know, how did you get involved with the COCO? You know, what has it meant to you over the years, or how have you used it? And uh, we'll just kind of go along from there. So, Okay. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, it is kind of different being on the other side of the microphone in a sense, but... Uh... Yeah, so how I got started in the color computer, um, I would say it was in 1983, uh, was my first exposure to a color computer. I had a friend named Tim Johnson who lived in the town I was living in. He had an older brother that was going to a university in northern Louisiana at the time called Louisiana Tech. And his older brother had a, a Cocoa One, or uh, actually, Great Cocoa One, I think it was 32K or 16K, maybe they had upgraded it. Anyway, uh, Scott was Tim's older brother. He would bring the color computer home on the weekends, and, and Tim would play on it. And I would go to Tim's house, uh, you know, as we kids do, spend the night at each other's houses over the weekends. And I saw the cocoa there, and the cocoa was hooked up to a TV about four feet away, sitting on a dresser, and it was a huge 19-inch color TV, as I recall. And I was captivated by it. I just thought it was the most interesting thing that I had come across. Uh, the fact that I could sit there, type my name out, I was just fascinated by it. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I would go to Tim's house over the weekend just to play on the computer, even though I, the ruse was I was going to spend a weekend at Tim's house. It was really to go play with the cocoa. <laughs> 
So, uh, so and that uh, huge nineteen-inch color TV. <laughs> that's right, with a huge nineteen-inch color TV and a cassette recorder and a cassette okay. recorder. Yeah, can't forget that. So, no disc drive. So, uh, in Christmas of 1983, of course, the Coco 2 came out, and Tim's mom bought the Coco 2. But given that his older brother was in college, uh, I think his older brother strong-armed him into it and made Tim take the gray Coco 1 and keep it at the house. And Scott brought the uh, Coco 2 with him to, uh, to the university. We still had the Coco there, and I would, I would again, would go to Tim's. And Scott had at the time, uh, several cassette tapes full of programs and games, and I learned how to clode things like uh, Rocket 2, which was an adventure game that I really liked, The King, which was a Donkey Kong clone, Lancer, which was a Joust clone, there was Pack Attack, there were other games like that. And, of course, I'm learning the whole time how to program in BASIC. I'm reading the BASIC manual, the book that comes with the Coco. So I was hooked. But... Uh, the fact of the matter is I couldn't go to Tim's every weekend just to play with the computer, right? Uh, 1985, when I really got serious about getting my own computer, and, and, and my dad told me, he said, if you want it, you're going to have to work for it. So in the uh, summer of 85, I began to uh, mow lawns uh, for the people in our church uh, to save up enough money for a color computer. And in fact, around the summer of 1985, there was a sale on the Cocoa 2 the 16K Coco 2 with extended basic was $99 uh, around June or July of that year. And I think the 64K one was 159 so I had to opt for the $99 one. So I ended up putting up on layaway at the local Radio Shack a 16K Coco 2 with extended basic. In fact, the model number was a 26-3136B, which you can't find anymore. I know that <laughs> Neil has been looking for, for one for me. Uh, yeah. I don't have my original one, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, anyway, it was a it was a it was a 16 k system. So when I finally got it uh, out of layaway in November of 1985 for my birthday, and then got a television and a cassette recorder myself, I was able to really start, uh, you know, doing d doing things with my own computer. And I would literally stay up all night if I if my dad would not catch me, I would sneak up and uh, you know play but usually the green glow under the door would give away the fact that i was on it so i was castigated quite a bit uh those early years uh just absolutely just riveted by the cocoa <laughs> cool so all right well so eventually you got the cocoa and i'm you're kind of guessing at the dates here that's roughly about the time you started high school um, yeah, yeah, I was uh, about 10th grade at that point, and then and September of 86 rolls around, uh, and the Coco 3 is announced. Oh, well, before I get to that, so in December of 85, a month after I get the Coco, my mom uh, bought me an FD500 for Christmas, so I was able to get a, a floppy disk within about a month of getting the Coco, because I could tell the cassette recorder was just way too slow, right, problematic for loading and things oh, yeah. like that. So in all of '86, I had a I had a 16K Coco 2 with a uh, with an FD500 system that I could, uh, you know, load programs and save programs a lot quicker and a lot more reliably. But I was always stymied with the fact that I could not load up those games on a uh, the games that uh, were on the cassette recorder. Incidentally, I got a copy of that cassette from Tim in 1986, but most of those games were 32K. So I was I was stuck with the 16K system until. Uh, the Coco 3 was announced in September of 86, and I forgot exactly how I found out about it. I think maybe we got a Radio Shack flyer in the mail, and I saw the ad or something 
or heard about it, I don't remember, but I got wind of it. And, uh, you know, living in a small town in the south, we didn't have the Internet, and, you know, communication was a little slower than it is today. But I did in, end up getting one. Uh, my dad actually bought it for me that year because by that point I was a year into owning a computer, and he saw how serious and diligent I was with it. So I got the Coco 3 in, I think, around October, November of 86, and in December of 86, my mom bought me a CM8. So by that point, I had 128K Coco 3, a CM8, and a floppy disk drive. So I was able to really go to town on that. Cool. In 87, I, I, I picked up a modem. Uh, it was a DCM5. I don't know if you guys remember that one. It had the, the command set that you'd uh, invoke with an asterisk, followed by whatever command you wanted to dial or whatever. I had I actually figured that out on my own. I didn't have a manual for it. I had got it from somebody in town. I think I traded it for something. And uh, anyway, uh, my famous stunt was that I ran the phone bill up one month for $300 calling out BBSs uh, long distance because there were no BBSs in my town. So uh, I had to go back to work to pay that, that stunt off at Popeye's frying chicken all summer. <laughs> on the plus yeah. side, I got to eat pretty well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a somewhat common story of people running up the phone bill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, just a kid being enthusiastic, right? But uh, it, it got me to understand a little bit about how modems worked, what communication was. What I mean, this was pre-Internet, right, at least pre-consumer Internet. But uh, it really, uh, it again, it captivated me. And I remember going through the uh, May 1987 issue of The Rainbow, I wasn't subscribing at the time, but Dad had gone to a, uh, to a town that had a, a, a bookstore, and I asked him to pick me up a copy of The Rainbow when he did. And that's, I believe there was, Sinsoft maybe was a company that had a BBS that would advertise in The Rainbow, I think out of Cincinnati, Ohio. And then at the beginning of The Rainbows, there was the, uh, the BBS list that you could call up that The Rainbow would publish. So I, I kind of abused that. But anyway, uh, had a good time learning about that stuff. So it was an expensive lesson, but nonetheless, it was uh, it was something that made me realize what communication was about. And then around September of 87, I began to subscribe to the Rainbow. I was able to afford a subscription. I think it was $31 a year. And I mean, now that's nothing. But back then for a kid still in high school, I uh, wasn't working. I had to convince my dad for, you know, getting allowance money or whatever, so I had to save up my own money to get it, and I got a subscription. And then, uh, for Christmas of 87, uh, Dad bought me a Star Next 1000 printer from a company called Dayton Associates that advertised in the Rainbow. And they had a uh, they had an interface that was a parallel to serial interface called the Blue Streak Ultima. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I had one. Had one. Yeah, yeah it, it, you had to buy it separately, but that had the cable that went from the serial port the serial I.O. port on the back of the Cocoa to the uh, parallel port on the printer. So then I was able to do my reports and things like that more uh, more professionally on a printer for school. And then around the same time, I got exposed to OS 9 Level 2 through a, a color computer club in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, which was kind of far from me, but one of the closer ones, called the Singing River Color Computer Club. Uh, they had some, they had a, a program, or had a, I say a program, a, a way of uh, loaning out disks <clears throat> for different pieces of software. So I got OS 9 as a copy and loaded it up and played with it. And actually, my first exposure to OS 9 was actually a little bit earlier than that because in, in, in early 87, you guys remember DeskMate 3 came out. 
I, I had I bought a copy of that, or Dad bought a copy of that for me, and that actually ran under OS 9 Level 2, and I accidentally discovered that by exiting the main Deskmate program and getting an OS 9 prompt, which I knew what OS 9 was by reading about it in the Radio Shack catalog, but beyond that I didn't know much. So I began to explore OS 9 that way, then through the uh, the disk program at the club, and uh, you know, did play with OS 9 from 87 to 88, and then after that, after graduating high school, uh, you know, going on to college, starting uh, a computer science curriculum, and uh, incidentally, while I was, uh, or right after I graduated high school in '88, I, I got the opportunity to visit uh, Fallsoft. Had won an FBLA computer programming competition in the state, and was going to the nationals in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, that year. And we stopped back on the way from Cincinnati. Uh, in uh, Prospect and got to meet Lonnie Falk, and uh, that was pretty cool. So, <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's kind of my Coco uh, career up to high school and getting into college. And so then you uh, sold the Coco and stopped and uh, didn't come back until uh, two or three years ago? Well, actually, <laughs> I did get rid of the Coco for a while because when I got into, high, uh, got into college, you know, everything was MS-DOS, 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 so... You know, I, I got rid of a lot of all my Cocoa stuff, unfortunately. Wish I wouldn't have done that, of course, but did and, and, and stuck around with the MS-DOS stuff. But I, I really missed it, and I went and got, uh, I forgot exactly how I commandeered a new Cocoa 3, but around 1990, I think I got one back, and I did a repack on it, in fact, in an old PC case, and uh, began to learn 6809 assembly about uh, late 1990, early 91, and uh, by that point, um, I had gotten involved with uh, Scott McGee, who was a friend of mine out of uh, Utah, and with Carl Kreider to resurrect the OS9 user group in, in uh, fall of 1991. At that point, the OS9 users group was, I think, uh, two years defunct, maybe one year defunct, and kind of had gotten let go, and I wanted to kind of bring it back. We got that going for a while. I think it lasted about three or four years after that, maybe five years when uh, uh, Carl Bowl and the guys at Glenside took it over. Uh, that uh, Doing the OS9 user group and meeting people like Carl and Scott and others and uh, got me more involved in the community. And at that point when I was in my college career, there was this thing called the Princeton List Server. And the old oh, yeah. Cocoa List Server back uh, was hosted by that back in 1991-1992, and that went on for several years. But that's how I really got my my network in the Coco community back then. Uh, I, I wasn't in a town where I could dial the TimeNet or Telnet servers right to to get on Delphi or CompuServe, and you had to pay by the hour for that stuff anyway. So that was just not economical for me. But while I was in college, I had access to the network at the university, so I had access to Unix systems, and I could. Uh, pull up Usenet news groups, and you know I had email, so that's where I began to get involved really heavily in the community at that point. And this is really the waning years of the Coco 3 in terms of it being a sellable product, right? Because it was canceled, I think, in 1990. Sure. It was announced that it was canceled. So by that point, you know uh, the Coco was the Coco 3 was kind of becoming, uh, you know, it was going to be a has been at that point. But I still used it and. That really uh, kind of catapulted me to uh, apply to go to work for Microware in the spring of 1992, which I did. I sent my resume in, 
Scott McGee, who helped me with the users group, actually got hired that summer at Microware and moved to Des Moines from uh, from Utah. And on July the 27th of 1992, I actually uh, started my first day at Microware, moved up to Des Moines, and uh, began my career there at Microware. Incidentally, the week before I the week before I interviewed at Microware in in June of 1992. My first Cocoa Fest I ever attended was the first annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest. That was wow. May 30th and 31st of 1992. Uh, that was the first time I was ever able to attend a Cocoa Fest. And that, unfortunately, I missed all of the actual Rainbow Fests. But I did attend that fest. I remember meeting uh, Tony Pedraza, uh, Howard Lucky, uh, Dave Myers, Chris Burke, a lot of people, Frank Hogg, that were involved in the color computer, and of course the MM1 at the time and OSK, and uh, it, we I think the users group even had a booth there that I manned, so uh, that was pretty exciting. So yeah, that was the first fest I attended. <laughs> Very cool, and at that lovely hotel uh, they used to have it in. <laughs> it was a Schaum- think- It was in Schaumburg. I forgot which hotel it was, but that particular year it was in Schaumburg. Oh yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. Oh, let's see. Well, is that, uh, let's see, where do we go from here? I could talk about my time at Microware, which was obviously very influential in, in the stuff that I worked on for the Cocoa and, and, and the OS9 platforms in general. Um, so I worked from, I started in 92. I worked for Microware from 92 to 2000. And during that time, I was able to, now that I was working and not in college, I was able to afford to go to, Every Cocoa Fest between uh, 1992 and 2000, uh, every Atlanta Fest, there were like three or four of them from 1992 to 1995, and there was even a, a Mid-America Fest in 93, I think, that Terry Simmons had put on in Des Moines I was involved with. So there were a lot of opportunities for me to travel and uh, and do that, uh, do, to attend the fests. Um, I, in fact... Uh, for the 1993 Chicago Cocoa Fest, which was the second annual last one, we were just releasing a new version of OS 9000 for the 386. And we had all these old boxes of manuals and software for the previous 1.3, and we were releasing 2.0. It was definitely a major upgrade release. Wouldn't it be cool if we could sell copies of OS 9000, previous version, for a big discount? Because I think OS 9000 was selling for $995 a license, and there was no way Cocoa people were going to pay that. Sure. Right, so it was very expensive. So we got the guys at Microware to agree to try it out, and we ended up taking, I don't remember how many boxes full of manuals of OS 9000, 386, 1.3, and we sold them for $350 a piece, and we did pretty well. Microware had a booth that year showing off some CDI equipment. I came up with that idea, and the blessing of the higher-ups at Microware, we actually did that. So that was the one and only time I think Microware was at uh, post-Rainbow Fest, Cocoa Fest. Uh, Did they... uh, did, did Microware actually care about the cocoa or, or any of the people <laughs> in the in the long term of that, or was it mostly well, an opportunity to move some old stock? It was mostly, I think it was mostly an opportunity. A lot of people at Microware had an affinity and appreciation for the cocoa folks, but in reality, Microware was always selling expensive licenses to the commercial market, and they couldn't justify taking calls from 15-year-olds trying to figure out how to boot an OS 9 system on a cocoa. <laughs> right. It's understandable, but there was always a cocoa contingent of people working there. Myself, Joel Hegberg came on some years later. 
OS9 Al, Alan Huffman came on board. In fact, I'm the one that gave OS9 Al that moniker that kind of <laughs> became a running joke. Eric Critchlow, Chet Simpson, you know, these guys came from the Coco community and worked at Microware at one time or another. In fact, at one time, all five of us were there and hung out. James Jones, of course, was there before us, but he hung out with us too. So it was pretty fun. Those were some fun times around 95, 96, 97. Getting into going to Cocoa Fests, being able to participate, and of course, working at Microware, I had access to UUCP, a mail, things like that coming from college, and I can afford a Delphi account and a CompuServe account, which I got, and was even able to further continue communicating with the people on those services. I worked on some interesting projects at Microware, but I always did stuff on the side for the Cocoa outside of the company time because I felt it added value and it helped me keep my skills sharp. It was not maybe directly applicable, but it was close. There was a UCP port that I worked on for the Cocoa with Bob Bilson under OS9. There was a mail reader called POM that I worked on with a guy named Jeff Shepler. These were C-based programs that we had we would work on for the Cocoa. Kind of open source before open source was open source, right? <laughs> right. Did that, and, and then sometime in 94, I got an MM1. So I worked on some K-Windows updates for the MM1 worked on a telecom software for the MM1 called LinkUp, stuff like that. Incidentally, in 1994, at the Cocoa Fest, then that I met Mark Marlette, got to know him over the subsequent couple of fests, and we developed, of course, collaboration with his company, Cloud9, which persists to this day. So it's been a lifelong, or maybe not lifelong, but certainly half-lifelong friendship that I've had <laughs> with Mark. Working on projects like that, working at Microware on real OS 968K, OS 9000 projects, really cemented my, uh, uh, set the pace for, for my career there. So I'm very grateful for that. Did that, attended more Cocoa Fest during 1995. Something interesting in 1995 happened at Microware. I don't remember the exact date, but I'm pretty sure it was around the summer of 95. I was walking around the headquarters one night. I would often work late. You know, you're young, single, oh, yeah. ambitious, you want to make a big impression, right? I'd be there late. This was in the old building on 100 and, uh, I think it was 114th Street. Microware's offices were arranged in cubicles that you would work in. Everyone had a cubicle. I had a cubicle. All the engineers had cubicles. And I was walking around the server. I was going to the server room for something. And the server room was a, this cool room that had a bunch of VME crates running OS 968K and OS 9000 for test bed development, stuff like that. And when I was walking back out, I passed a different way by a cube, and I saw a bunch of boxes just stacked in the cube. So I was kind of curious. I went through, and I started looking in the boxes, and I saw a color computer. Then I looked at another box, and I saw another color computer. Then I looked at another box, and I saw a bunch of ROM packs. What I had discovered during, I guess, a move that was happening inside the company were the original color computer 3s, a bunch of ROM packs and hardware that Tandy had given Microware to develop the Cocoa 3 ROM, develop OS 9 Level 2, and test all of the Cocoa 2 software on the new computer to make sure it ran under the new BASIC. I also found some documents, including the uh, 256 color mode memo that Tandy had written. I think there's a, a digital copy of it online somewhere. I discovered that. And when I found all this stuff, of course, I told Scott McGee, who was a Cocoa guy as well and who was working there. We gathered all this stuff up. I think Scott ended up giving the Cocoa 3s to Brother Jeremy. There were like four of them. They were prototype Cocoa 3s, but they were in a case. These weren't the big, big boards that Alan Huffman later found. That was a terrific find. And there was also this huge Gimmicks 6809 system that had a big hard drive in it and an 8-inch floppy disk. 
I booted it up, hooked up a terminal to it, and all of the OS 9, 6809 source code was on that hard drive. I remember one text file, it was written by someone at Microware to Kevin Darling, talking about him coming up there to do some preliminary work on the OS 9 level 2 upgrade in 1988 or 89. I wasn't able to capture any of that stuff because I didn't really have a, any 8-inch floppy disks to work with. So I had no way to capture this. And the last I heard that that machine was used, picked up by someone at Microware some years later and used for target practice. Oh, Lord. Oh, that's a shame. Isn't that a shame? Even yeah, without so, the source code, it still would have been a valuable machine. <laughs> no doubt. No sure. doubt. It, it was a 6809 uh, gimmick system in, with a uh, an MFM hard drive. A honker. I mean, the capacitors were as big as your arm, right? The power supply in that thing was huge. That was an interesting find. Unfortunately, we didn't get to capture that. But a lot of the other stuff found in that cube made its way into the Coco community uh, in general through trading and bartering and stuff over the years. Because Microware wasn't interested in keeping all that. At some point, they, they let it go. Does that get us through the 90s? 2000 rolls around, still at Microware. Attended some pin fests, I think, in the late 90s and worked on a few things like the OS 9 ROM kit and some other things for Cloud 9. In 2000, I began to work on disassembling OS 9 Level 2 Alan DeCock, of course, worked on the original Nitrous 9 product with Wes Gale and Curtis Boyle and Bill Noble. Alan had made a product for OS 9 Level 2, 6809, called TuneUp. And TuneUp would take your disks, your OS 9 boot disk, and do some optimization to it. Working with Alan, we begin to disassemble this stuff, right? We were using the, the disassembler on the Cocoa itself running OS 9. And we begin to realize that if we could get a cross-development system or a set of cross-development tools running on something like Linux, it would be much quicker. So we begin to work in tandem on an assembler and a disassembler that ran under Linux. The assembler was called Mamu, named after a town in Louisiana. And it was actually based on the old uh, Motorola uh, 6809 assembler written in C. We used a, an emulator running on Linux to use the disassemble tool. I think that's what we did. We just spent a lot of time disassembling and commenting all of the source code. We had some source code from various sources that were already commented, but a lot of it wasn't. Then when you disassemble this stuff, you want to assemble it. So we had the assembler running under Linux. So you can make all of these binaries, but what do you do with them? You need to make disk images. I worked with Alan, and we created tools like uh, DECB and OS9 to actually create disk images on Linux that would allow you to copy these files over and make a boot file and a boot disk and merge the modules and all of that and create the directory structure. And that became Toolshed, which is still, I think, in use today by a lot of folks. It's a C-based set of tools for creating disk images, copying files from OS 9, Disk Basic, over to these disk images back and forth. We worked on that for a while. Over the course of three years, started putting this together and putting out disk images of what we called OS 9, which became, I would say, the next incarnation of Nitrous 9. That was pretty fun. Did that for uh, about three years. Still going to Fest. Actually, I took a break from going to Cocoa Fest for a couple of years, and back in 03, I went back. That's where I got an idea for doing a product called DriveWire. DriveWire, what is that? <laughs> At the time in 2003, I had left Microware, was doing some consulting work with my own business. I was going to Boston a lot, traveling a lot, like every other weekend or so. 
And I would bring my cocoa up to do some stuff on the weekend while I was up in Boston. But I didn't want to bring a floppy disk controller and a floppy disk drive in my luggage, right? Check that in, get it bounced around. The drive gets out of alignment and all that stuff. So I began to think about how could I do development, cross-development, because by then I had my tool shed software running and was building iterations of Nitrous 9. How could I do development on a real cocoa? And this was probably around the time emulators were available, but I was running a Mac. So there really weren't any emulator options for the Mac. And I wanted a real cocoa to do stuff I was working on. In the back of my mind, I remember going to a fest around 1993 or 94, and there was a guy named Chris Decker. He had a PC set up that year, and he had a cocoa set up next to it, and he had a serial cable hooked from the cocoa to the PC. He would transfer files at a very fast rate of speed. I began to think about that, did some looking up online on the Internet, started devising a way of using a PC or a Mac, in my case, to host a disk image that the Coco would then use as though it were a real floppy or hard drive. My goal was to do this without any additional hardware. Of course, I had to use a cable, so I devised a drive wire cable, which was a serial I.O. 4-pin bid banger cable to a 9-pin DB9 on the other end with a USB to serial cable to my Mac and begin to write the server software on the Mac side and then write the very timing-specific code on the Coco side, and that became DriveWire, which is still in use today and really has been in use in the Coco community for quite a bit. It's gone through several iterations over the years. I got some help from Darren Atkinson one time who really pitched in and gave me some very good quality routines on the Coco side to really crunch down on the timing a lot better, in fact, than what I had done in the initial revision of the software. DriveWire was definitely a product created out of necessity. I sold that through Cloud9 for quite a few years until I just got tired of supporting it and then released it out to the open source community along with HDBDOS, which was a modified version of an older DOS called RGBDOS, sold in the late 80s. Used that source code to make a DriveWire compatible disk basic environment as well as an OS9 environment with drivers. So that's how DriveWire got started back in 2003. Cool. And that's what, 16 years ago now? <laughs> yep, 16 years. DriveWire itself is effectively a retro computing project. Just as an aside, I was at uh, Tandy Assembly this year, and there was a guy that took DriveWire, the server for the PC, and hacked it so that he could run DriveWire on a Model 1, or a, I think it was a Model 1, might have been a Model 3. It's actually in use in other platforms as a protocol. DriveWire itself is a protocol, but it's also the hardware, the cable, the server software. So I'm pretty proud of that achievement. I'm glad to see that something I worked on and created as uh, has been used so widely in the community. And, of course, there are a lot better, quicker storage solutions out there. But for just somebody who doesn't want to spend a lot of money, poor man's hard drive, uh, drive wire certainly filled the bill on that. After that, I worked with Mark Marlette on some things. Of course, Mark did things like the Super IDE, the TC3 SCSI controller. He and I have collaborated on that. He would do the hardware. I would do the software. That product came out, I think, in 2004, Super IDE did. And Mark really pushed me hard to write a really nice set of drivers for OS 9 that supported the Super IDE, the Glenside IDE, the TC3, and that was SuperDriver. SuperDriver was an OS 9 6809 driver that talked to a number of different types of disk controllers. It used a dual-layer driver framework. I kind of took the idea from what they did in OS 9 68000 
where you have a high-level driver that knows the logical aspects of the disc that you're talking to and a low-level driver that actually knows the physical aspects. So you'd have a high-level driver on OS 9 for the Coco that would know how to do things like sector deblocking and handling the 512-byte sector size on the hard drive and feeding it back up to IOMAN and RBF in 256-byte chunks. Then you'd have the low-level driver for the IDE, a low-level driver for the SCSI. So you could, you could optimize your system memory by only pulling in the low-level drivers you needed, and the descriptors would weld those together. So I sold that through Cloud9 for a number of years. That did well until I decided to give that away as well because that became too much to support for my time. So all of that stuff, both DriveWire and SuperDriver, are in, uh, they're in open source. That almost brings us to the current decade. <laughs> well, let's see, at some point uh, you decided to write a book. Yep, I had been wanting to write a book about the Coco for years, uh, even back in the early 2000s, but busy with other things, timing wasn't right. But probably in 2010, I really started thinking hard about it. By that point, the Coco 3 had been out of production for, what, 20 years? Yeah. Yeah, about 20 years. And I felt there was enough time that had passed. There was an interest in retrocomputing in general that was getting more popular that I thought a Coco book could be a good seller, and it would be a good time to do it. Uh, at the time, there were books about the Commodore coming out and other computers of that genre. So having worked at Microware, having heard stories while I worked at Microware, some of the lore around the Coco 3, the Coco 4, building the network of people that I knew over the years, as I indicated over the various online networks, I really began to sit down and write a general outline how I wanted the book to, to look. And I would say around 2012 is whenever I really got serious about it. I think I maybe had announced it on the Cocoa list that I was going to do this. Somehow I let it out. I think I reached out to Bill because Bill at the time was a prolific author in the gaming space. And I had never written a book before, and I didn't know where to go for a publisher or anything like that. So Bill agreed to uh, come on board and help me write the book. And we had never met each other. We only talked on the phone up until and after the book was actually released. So it was truly a, a remote collaboration. We spent 2012 and some of 2013 writing the book, doing the research. I took several trips out to Dallas, got access to some of the archives there and the engineer, uh, one of the engineers that was still working at Radio Shack, <laughs> believe it or not, that actually worked on the Green Thumb, uh, Jerry Heap. I went to visit John Prickett and some other people around the Austin, Texas area. So I did a little bit of field tripping. And in 2013, I think it was December 2013, we released uh, the book uh, through CRC Press, a very distinguished, academically oriented book publisher. They handily agreed to take the book and sell it for us. And so we got the immediate reputation of having a well-known publisher get behind a book about the cocoa, which was really cool. And, yeah. Um, that we're really proud of that work, both Bill and I. And this is not to diminish any other contributions. I know that Frank Swigert had a great book uh, called Tandy's Little Wonder. So there were other books out there, but this was really the first truly published book on the history of the cocoa. And by the time it was written, there was enough history that had passed to make a book like that work, I think. Yep, yep, very cool. I think uh, I think all of us have read it. <laughs> and... Uh... Very, very good contribution to uh, the, to well, the history and to the hobby. So that's cool. Well, since then, I guess um, been to a number of vintage events, um, possibly you know promoting the book or otherwise. Uh, not all of them strictly cocoa. 
Right. I was, uh, I was actually tallying up how many Cocoa Fest I've been to. So I sat down and I, I, I wrote down each Cocoa Fest I attended, going back through my notes and emails and things to, to make sure I remember it correctly. Up to 2019, I've attended 32 Cocoa Fests. <laughs> 24 of those were Chicago. Four of those were Atlanta. One was in uh, the Des Moines one in 1993. And three of the Penn Fest ones. So that's 32 Cocoa Fests, and then I've attended eight vintage computing festivals over the course of the last five years, a couple up in the northeast, some in the southwest, in the southeast Atlanta and Dallas. And uh, but that's a total of 40 events, and I was thinking, my God, I actually got on a plane. Well, you can pretty much double or triple that number, actually quadruple it, because where I live, you always have to take two flights. So I've been on a plane <laughs> probably close to 200 times attending these things, if I had to just guess. I never really sat down and tallied it up until the other day. I've been lucky to have been around the color computer for as long as I have and for the influence that it's had on me, and hopefully I've influenced you know, others in a positive way. Well, I definitely think you have. We've got uh, the other hosts are on the line here. Surely um, some of them have uh, a comment or a question. Uh, I have a question. Boise, why don't you talk a little bit about attribution in the, in the community? You know, there's kind of two camps. There's the vanguard that's been around since the beginning, and there seems to be people that just kind of pop up out of nowhere, maybe have never even been in the hobby, and, uh, you know, some false information gets circulated rather quickly. Got any comment on that? Uh, it is important to give proper attribution. I don't think anyone in the community that I know of has been malicious or intentful in doing that, but it might happen occasionally. With new people coming in, it's important for people who've been here a while to state the uh, the progression, because this is all part of the history of the community as it happened after the color computer was canceled. So there's a lot of foundation, I think, that exists and credit to be given to people who've been here a long time doing this stuff. I think attribution is important. I think it's uh, the new people that are coming in now, 10 years from now, assuming the community is still around, they're going to be the ones that are contributing and adding to the body of knowledge and the body of work that is the Cocoa community. So I think it's important to to recognize that. Absolutely. Neil, Ron, any, uh, any comments or questions? Okay. Uh, just one of the quick questions I had was, with DriveWire, you know, in, in the rest of the retro community, I, I do mess with some other machines. and. The concept of virtual uh, disk access through like a, a connection to a host is not, I don't want to say uncommon in, in the other retro communities, but what I found is very unique with DriveWire is the ability to control the host server from the, um, the retro platform. So, for example, the Coco actually has the ability to talk back to the computer. So my question was this, when you were looking at designing the DriveWire protocol, was that a key feature um, in that design? Really, I have to say no at first, because when I designed DriveWire, it was simply for doing disk access. So that was basically a one-way COCO command server response thing. In fact, the early DriveWire protocol was entirely COCO driven. The server just responded. That began to change a little bit when I was starting to add the commands to support remote debugging. But then it really caught on when Aaron Wolf's work to DriveWire 4. Aaron Wolf came uh, through with a uh, with an addition to DriveWire known as DriveWire 4, where uh, you could use the commands on the Cocoa side, like you were talking about, to tell the server to do something, 
like mount a disk or make a network connection. And that kind of stuff required sometimes the server having to spontaneously ask the Cocoa for information or give the Cocoa information when it was ready without the Cocoa asking for it. Features like the networking aspect of DriveWire 4, Aaron and I sat down and designed that, and we both worked on the OS 9 side of things to make that happen and work. That wasn't the original intent of DriveWire, but it sort of evolved over the course of, what, 10, 12 years? That's a, that's a cool feature, and you have Aaron Wolf really, I think, to thank for that. Yeah, you guys did a great job on that. I think DriveWire has a lot of life in it, and I think that's a key. That's going to be a key part of it as it goes forward. So thanks for that response. I don't think it'll ever die. I think it's obviously being usurped by cheaper storage options, faster storage options, of course. But yeah, it has a place. People still use it today, so I'm pleased to see that. Well, it definitely is the, the only viable option for diskette-type uh, images that you can just hook up a serial cable, which maybe is somewhat more awkward than it was years ago um, because, you know, you at least have to buy the, the dongle for your laptop or whatever. But, uh, but uh, yeah, you can pick up a cocoa from a thrift shop and, you know, pay 15 bucks for it and yeah, maybe absolutely. throw another 10 bucks into a cable and, uh, you know, you're online and be able to run a lot of disk-based software, maybe not all of it, but uh, you can do some really cool stuff. It, it speaks to, I think, uh, it speaks to the Cocoa community's, uh, shall I say, thriftness and economy. <laughs> I'm not using the word cheap. Yeah. Uh, right? Our community is notoriously known for people who just, they want to get by with minimal cost. That's changing a little bit because there are some expensive hardware upgrades out and on the horizon, I think. Yeah, uh, you could get uh, just a cheap Cocoa, $10 cable, free software. You need a PC or something to run it, but those aren't that expensive either, and you, yeah. many people already have it. And boom, you know, you're off, off to town loading all that copyrighted software. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it's definitely great because I, I immediately applied it to uh, when I was traveling 100% of the time. It allowed me to take a Cocoa with me. And like you yep. said, you can't drive discs along, but uh, I already had a, a laptop, of course, for work. So yep, it all exactly. uh, worked beautifully. And uh, in fact, if you boot. That model uh, very well. Yeah, and you could boot OS 9 from it. Uh, it was awesome. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely a great way to, to test on real hardware. You know, as long as your your software is not actually driving diskettes, so <laughs> if you right. want to play with, say, video timing, so that sort of thing. Uh, but you still have to slip along, slip along some kind of monitor. But, uh, you know, with LCD monitors, uh, especially small ones, that's not a big deal either. Right. Yeah, th those are usually in hotels. Well, that's true, too. After something, so, yeah. But, um, but yeah, now the, the, you mentioned the, the traditional thriftiness of the Cocoa community. Like like some of the rest of us, you've been around for decades, and uh, I'm sure, like me, you can remember when people didn't want to spend five bucks on anything. <laughs> um, and sometimes it still seems like we have uh, plenty of those. But uh, the community today, there's a lot of people who uh, produce uh, various hardware upgrades, and uh, certain folks, um, they'll just announce the upgrade and not even have one available, and people are throwing money at them, and... Uh, and Shut praising them and uh, making plans for when the products are released in two years or whatever. <laughs> and quite often, you're talking about $100, $200 items. Uh, yeah, the Cocoa community is not so cheap anymore. And, and that's a yeah. good thing, I guess. We're all older. Uh, we hopefully have more disposable income than we had when we were in our teens. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, soon we'll all be running around with uh, hood scoops and uh, chromoly uh, rims and uh, <laughs> whatever. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Little the the running lights with them that make you look oh, like you're God. floating in a land speeder. Yeah, your cocoa will be bouncing up and down on your desk with the with big. <laughs> Uh, they'll suggest it. It might happen. But, uh, <laughs> as long as you're using the GMC, right? Yeah, well, that'd be a good one. Bounce along to the beat. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Boise, if you could uh, kind of talk about HDB DOS. Uh, how did that come about? And you know, Yeah, that's that? a great question. Mm-hmm. I didn't get into details on that. So um, RGB DOS, as I mentioned earlier, was a, uh, it was a hard disk basic that was very, very compatible with disk extended color basic, more so than things like Hyper-IO and, and other DOSs at the time that tried to bring hard drive functionality to disk basic. It was made by a guy named Roger Krupski. He wrote HDB DOS, and he sold it through company, well, I think he sold it through RGB Systems, which was his own company. But he sold the rights to it to a guy named Joe Shinta, who owned a company called Kenton Electronics out of Tonawanda, New York. And Joe sold hard drives. He sold SCSI hard drives. In fact, in 1989 or 1990, I actually bought one. 40-meg hard drive. It was a Seagate 157N SCSI hard drive with a Kenton controller, and it came with RGB DOS. I've been using RGB DOS for a long time. So in 1997, Joe was going out of business, and I got the rights to RGB DOS from Joe Shinta, including the source code, and I wrote, as I was developing DriveWire, I adapted RGB DOS and, of course, renamed it to HDB DOS because I didn't want any confusion with the additional functionality I was putting in, and HDB stands for Hard Disk Basic. It worked beautifully because the Discon routines, which are up in the Disk Extended ROM, because HDB DOS and Discon give you a nice layer of indirection from the hardware, right? It's the way Tandy wanted companies to access the disk not by directly talking to the floppy disk controller hardware, but through this uh, this interface. I forgot what the address was. C-1002, maybe? Uh, yeah. Don't remember. But anyway, it was a jumping-off point at that address in ROM to do all of the various things to, like, read a sector, write a sector, all that kind of stuff. So that's what made HDB DOS really work well to work with all sorts of drives. So that's the, that's the history of HDB DOS. And HDB DOS for a number of years now, is open source and is part of the Toolshed open source repository. And uh, I would have to say that SuperDriver was, uh, you know, a yeah. game changer for a lot of people. Oh, it yeah. was really, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed writing it. It was challenging. Mark Marlett really pushed me on that. Um, uh, there were times I wanted to say it was good enough, and he kept he kept on. That was one thing we were always good at with each other, was pushing each other on ideas so all of that stuff is now open source for everybody to play with and and modify and expand. Uh, so Boise, where do you where do you go from here? Where do you see uh, what are you going to be taking on here in the future? I try to work on some projects, but it's just it's a matter of time for me. So I've moved away from doing I think all of the software and hardware that I'm probably going to do. I'm not saying there might be one more thing, like Steve Jobs would say, but I like the idea of studying the history and documenting the history of the community. So that's something that I think is important for me to focus on. That's where I see my role now in the Cocoa community. I'm I'm not making hardware anymore or collaborating with Mark to make hardware, I should say. That's where I see myself probably doing the most work uh, going forward is a 
more of a, a, a researcher, a historian, a documentarian, and maybe something will come up where I'll do some more software hardware. Out of all the projects you've done uh, from the past to present, uh, what would be your favorite? The two favorites, I have two, and they're both equal, the book and, of course, DriveWire. So I would say for software, it's DriveWire, and for everything else, it's the book. Those are my two favorite projects. Yeah, those are great. And uh, who's the uh, Coco personality in, in the community that you've most enjoyed meeting over the years, you know, aside from Marlette? Greg Zumwalt. Now, he did give me a deluxe Coco, so I can't. can't <laughs> That's kind of sweet in the deal, huh? Uh, yeah. Well, we did have him on the show, as I'm sure you remember, and uh, yep, I'm absolutely. sure he is a, a very warm person to talk to. Yes. Bringing that up also made me think of, about something I didn't touch on, and that is my Coco collection. The other thing that I have uh, personally is I have a number of what I call Cocoa artifacts. The four Cocoa 3s that I said that Scott McGee gave to Brother Jeremy, I was able to buy those back five or six or seven years ago, maybe a little bit longer. So I have those. I have uh, two deluxe Cocos. Uh, one uh, I got from Greg and one I got from John Prickett, who designed the Cocoa 2 and the Cocoa 3 Gimme. And I have the, uh, I say, prototype Cocoa 4. Some people in the Tandy lore say there never was talk of a Cocoa 4. I beg to differ because I've been told by a couple of people that there was definitely talk about it. But I, I have the, the case, the mock-up, the case mock-up, if you will, of a Cocoa 4. It's pictured in the book, and you can find pictures of it on the Internet as well, that I got also from John Prickett. I keep those stored away in a safe place. And I've also collected microware memorabilia from, uh, over the years from former employees, so I have a whole stack of artwork and some discs and CDs and, and other things that are old uh, old microware stuff. So, yeah, I keep that uh, keep that close by. Now, is uh, uh, microware uh, still in business? Uh, as a smaller, much smaller version of itself, yeah. Uh, Alan Badiger and uh, a consortium of two other companies or individuals bought the rights uh, some years, three or four years back, maybe. Yep, so it's still there. They're still supporting OS 9 for ARM and uh, I think for some other platforms. I'm sure we can uh, easily follow up with you if anything else comes to mind. Or if, uh, and, of course, as we always uh, like to invite people to send feedback to, of course, feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, at org. Send us an email. Send us a uh, Either, uh, you know, written or audio response. You can send questions for Boise or comments for us all making fun of Boise. It, it all works for us. <laughs> so, but, uh, Boise, I think this has been very uh, entertaining and informative, and we appreciate you uh, kind of putting a little more of your, your personal self out on the line for um, public uh, admiration and ridicule. <laughs> I'm sure I'll get both. Yeah. So I'm sure very good. People, I'm sure a lot of people hearing this will say, "Oh, that's that Boise." Yeah, yeah, yeah because one. they probably knew three or four Boises in their that's lives. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a very popular name. <laughs> All, All right. right, thank you guys. It was fun. Very good. All right, well, why don't we draw this to a close, and uh, we'll be back with uh, well the rest of the show.
Fred, yeah. remember when I wanted to run the business on a color computer? Yeah. And you said it was too hard to move back and forth through all those different programs. Yeah. And you said all the software would cost a thousand dollars. Yeah. Well, you want to hear something? No. VIP Library integrates all the applications we need, and guess who sells it? Tiny Tim. No, SD Enterprises. Swell. All six VIP applications are combined onto one disk. VIP Database, VIP Writer, VIP Spell, VIP Calc, Terminal, and Disk Zap. So? So, we can do mail merge. Finances, correspondence, all with VIP library. Yeah? Yeah. And it's not a thousand bucks. It's just $169.95. Wonderful. Finally, we'll have time to go see a movie. No. VIP library. The only integrated application suite your Coco will ever need. Hey, what's put a smile on your face this morning? Oh, it's my Fred. Fred? From accounting? No, you idiot. Fred, F-R-E-H-D. It's a hard drive emulator for the TRS-80. It emulates the original Tandy hard disk drive, but stores everything on an SD card. Oh, I see. I ran programs that I hadn't touched in years because running them from floppy disks was just so painful. More painful than Fred from accounting? <laughs> Shut up. For information and pricing, contact Ian Maverick via email. I-A-N-M at TRS-80.com. Greetings, Coco Cruisers. This is John Linville, humorless Dark Lord of the Coco, um, back once again to bring you another Coco Crew tech segment. <laughs> if you don't get the inside joke uh, in the intro, well, you're probably better off. <laughs> anyway, what are we talking about this month? I thought we'd talk a little bit about the play command. As many of you will know, I've been involved for some time with uh, promoting a audio hardware option to add, well, designed to be added for games to play music and entertain you a bit um, through the ears as it entertains you with the game. So one thing that's been suggested from time to time uh, is it'd be nice if people could program this audio using the play command. I think there, some of them probably have in mind the play command that was available for the basic for the Tandy 1000, which of course used used uh, the same chip that uh, I'm using in the game Master Cartridge, and so it's not an unreasonable expectation. And overall, the play command is kind of cool. Uh, maybe not the best. Uh, it's not as good as say the music language that comes with Orchestra 90, but it's not bad for trying to transcribe music and such thought I'd talk a little bit about that and but without going into a lot of detail about the play command itself I thought the more an interesting subtopic is how does the play command keep track of time and how does it you know play the notes for the right amount of time and then move on you know what is the play command if you're not familiar with extended color basic you've sort of missed out if you missed out on the play command or at least if you had any musical interest or wherever in a a band or a musical class in school. <laughs> uh, the play command, uh, so it's a command in extended color basic, is, and it's part of extended color basic, it's not part of regular color basic. Um, it, it sort of approximates the transcription of sheet music, uh, meaning that it allows you to enter music in terms of you know, notes with the, you know, names like E, F, and G or whatever. It has the concepts of octaves, of course, built in, and um, uh, some other stuff that com that comports pretty well with sheet music. It's not 100%, so it 
Let me just back off. Say that there's several other basics, particularly those from Microsoft, that have versions of the play command. So it's not quite universal, but if you are wanting to put music into a basic program, it's a pretty good place to start. <laughs> uh, particularly, and in particular, if you're using a color basic on you know on the Coco or or extended color basic rather on the Coco, um, I think it. I'm not 100% sure if it's available on the MC-10 or the Dragon, but it is available on the color, color computer with Extended Color Basic, at least. Um, also available with the QBasic and GW Basic, at least on the Tandy 1000. So there you go. There are some limitations, I think. It's, it's not as expressive, as I was saying, as Orchestra 90. Or almost certainly are some musical pieces that will be a little difficult to translate every detail of, of the notation over doesn't have any way to express concepts you know, related to you know musical phrasing or articulation or, or whatever but it it's not bad you know unless you specify the lengths of the notes and the, and what note they are and you can differentiate between the different octaves and change tempo and and volume and that sort of thing so it, it's it's pretty workable for a lot of decent music well well decent maybe <laughs> so subject to your own ears anyway now there are other versions of the play command, say for the Tandy 1000 uh, basics, that uh, did support uh, playing for multiple voices of music, playing music in the background or whatever. The extended color basic only supports one voice, and it is foreground play only. So anyway, well, why don't we move on from there? Let's see. So when we're playing music, you basically have two kind of things to need to be timed <laughs> when you're synthesizing music, shall we say? Uh, you need to control the frequency of the tone that you're generating, so many hertz or whatever, so that it actually changes the pitch of the tone. And then you also have to time the length of the note. So is it a quarter note or a half note, you know, sixteenth note, whatever. And of course, when we're talking about something on the Coco, we have uh, limited timing resources. I mean, you always have cycle counting, which is you know a little hinky and. Not something you'd want to do on modern systems. Uh, but on the Coco, since you have, well, you have two speeds possible and you're pretty much in control of which speed you're running at, you, you kind of know how many clocks something will take, you know, how much time will be involved, uh, you know, how fast the clock is running, that sort of thing. So, <laughs> um, anyway, cycle counting is not bad, but it's pretty fragile, if ten, you know, if you start changing the code and it's kind of... If not particularly difficult, but sort of a pain in the butt to begin with because it's just a whole lot of math. The more typical thing to people would want to use for timing would be, you know, countdown timers manipulated by interrupt handlers. And of course, on the, the 6809, you've got the, both the fast interrupt and the, um, the regular interrupt. Unfortunately, we have nothing on the Coco uh, normally to generate a fast IRQ for us, uh, so that's pretty much out for anything you'd want to do while running BASIC. Potentially, you could use a H-Sync or V-Sync uh, signals to ge generate the IRQ signal. Problem being, well, a couple of things, there's only one handler for IRQ, so it would have to differentiate between the two signals, potentially. The H-Sync signal tends to come in too fast to be practical for much use. It wouldn't necessarily be bad for for doing at least the frequency synthesis. But uh, like I said, it comes in a little too fast for that. You know, you basically burn more cycles handling the interrupt than, <laughs> than you can actually use within it. 
So anyway, so async's not very practical. You can use vsync, but uh, it's too slow to use for um, frequency generation. It is, however, pretty useful for timing the lengths of the notes. And uh, vsync is also already being hooked up in extended color basic or color basic, I guess, even um, one maybe it's just extended color basic that has timer. Either way, there's already hook is being used by basic, so you know. Perhaps surprisingly, uh, you'll see later that they, they go ahead and make use of the IRQ for the, for that purpose. So let's talk about some of the implementation of the play command here. Of course, on the, we're on the Coco, and Extended Color Basic is using the uh, DAC for audio output for the play command. Perhaps surprisingly, since they're using the DAC, they're, they're not actually generating pretty sine waves or even sawtooth or RS either. No, not sawtooth, but uh, not even step sound waves, but um, instead they're basically just generating, well, I guess you'd call them square waves, but they don't just go straight from all the way on to all the way off. They have this uh, middle step, <laughs> so middle representing effectively zero, and then there's a low and, and a high, uh, or you might think as high as the positive and low as the negative. And so they, they actually have essentially four periods in, in one wave period, four sections in a wave. They spent the first quarter at the, the sort of the speaker neutral section. And um, so 25% in the middle, and then they go high for 25% of the time, and then they go back to the middle for 25% of the time, and then they go low for 25% of the time, and then, of course, it repeats. Um, so this is basically a square wave with a, a different duty cycle. I'm not... I don't want to get in trouble misdescribing the duty cycle, but uh, I just told you what the wave does. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's the wave that you're going to generate. See, the timing of that uh, is going to be based on static number value that is used in a, in a countdown timer. There's a lookup for for your the, whatever note you're trying to play. There's actually two different frequency tables because I guess they take up a little extra space and somebody thought they could save some space because the notes at the lowest two octaves, the the numbers for those lookup values um, are all actually, you know, 255 or less. So they only really need one byte, but for the higher ones you need two bytes. And so they, they actually determine uh, when they go to the note generation part, they figure out which octave you're in. And if you're in the lowest two octaves, they uh, look up in the one byte frequency table and just um, assume that there's a, a zero on the front. Uh, <laughs> and if you're in the higher four octaves or whatever, I think it's four, maybe it's five. Anyway, uh, the higher octaves, they assume they're looking up a two byte value. Uh, the value gets loaded into X and, and decremented uh, each time through the loop, and so the numbers there are set for uh, you know to match that kind of usage. And like I said, that the time the countdown value represents a quarter of the wave cycle, because like I said, it steps through from you know middle to high, back to middle, then to low, and then back to middle to high, middle low, middle high, middle low, middle high, middle low, like that. <laughs> Anyway, once you're down to generating and actually synthesizing a, a tone output, you'll notice that the loop there is infinite. If you're looking at, uh, say, the you know, extended basic unraveled or, or whatever, the loop just never ends. So how is it that you can play a, a note and it actually does end? <laughs> 
how does that work? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. Just keep this in your pocket. But just before you start generating the synthesizing that frequency, the U register gets a, a slightly adjusted copy of the stack register. So it's just sitting there in U as you're in your infinite loop. And there it sits. Okay? So when it comes to the note length, uh, the note countdown timer, the total value for that timer, the current value, shall we say, it's essentially constant, which I thought was kind of interesting, and it's only not constant because it puts in a different value for um, uh, for um, dotted notes, uh, essentially. Uh, so, so like a dotted quarter note, that sort of thing, a dotted half note. They're you know they're three halves as long or fifty you know, percent longer than a regular note. Anyway. <laughs> It's just kind of an interesting nit. It's not a big technical deal, but uh, I thought it was interesting that they um, take the approach of setting the, the countdown value. Essentially, it's like I said, it's almost a constant value. And so the for the for the initial value. And then they have a decrementer that, uh, of course, gets applied as you go through the, um, the IRQ timer handler, which... That decrementer value is calculated by multiplying the uh, the, the tempo value uh, by the note length. You know, again, it kind of plays in with the uh, you could, you know you could use those values to adjust the the total, or you can adjust the decrementer, and it kind of fits better to adjust the decrementer because in those cases, at least it said as is specified, the bigger numbers for either of those values either tempo or the, the note length actually is supposed to be less time. So like a, a whole note is a one, a half note is two, and a quarter note is a four. <laughs> I think that's how it goes. Anyway, so it's like one divided by the number. It, I guess, represents the, the, the traditional notational uh, values. <laughs> anyway, so the bigger the numbers, the less time. So by putting using those numbers to calculate the decrementer, it works kind of naturally. Uh, every time the IRQ handler runs, well, so the the, the base IRQ handler checks to see if the if there's a note playing, and if it's not, it just kind of goes along its merry way. But if there is a note playing, it will take the total and then take the decrementer, you know, subtract the decrementer from the total. And if it's still above zero, then uh, it kind of you know, saves the, the new total and, and moves on. If it does go below zero, then it, um, it, will, it moves on to the exit step, which we'll get to in a second. Well, actually, we'll get to it now. <laughs> so remember, we left the frequency generator just for spinning in, a, in an endless loop. The IRQ handler, you know, it pops up 60 times a second. And when IRQ happens, the, the register values are all stacked automatically by the CPU. And like I said, one of the things that we saved was a slightly adjusted copy of the S register was saved into U. And so if the IRQ handler determines that the currently playing note should stop, it takes that U, the value from U and uses that as a new stack value. Uh, so normally at the end of an inter interrupt handler, you'd execute an RTI, so return from interrupt uh, routine, and it would essentially undo, you know, so it had stacked all the registers, it would put them all back and return, kind of similar to a function call, uh, once the, the registers were restored. 
But in this case, the NRP handler itself is uh, toying with that, which is similar to what an operating system might do in a in a context switch. In this case, the context switch is uh, taking the stack register value from just before it started uh, synthesizing a note, and it's uh, putting that back onto the stack, and then adjusting the um, the value that's in place of the condition code register. That's where it would say the the flag that says it's whether it was an IRQ which stacked all the registers or an, a fast IRQ which doesn't stack registers. So it manipulates, it manipulates that value to say it was a fast IRQ, indicating there are no registers stacked, right? So then once he's finished his stack mani- manipulations, then he does his um, RTI, goes to the stack and says, okay, there's no register stacked, which you know, is what it looks like, because even though it started as an IRQ, it now looks like an FIRQ. So he doesn't modify any more registers, and he um, returns to just before just before he started uh, synthesizing the current node's frequency. So he basically t- completely breaks out of the, the that endless loop, and he moves on from there, and the way it's coded from there is he just moves on to continue processing then whatever's next in the command string for the play command. And that's it. <laughs> Which I think that's pretty clever. He's essentially doing a context switch inside of the, the, the play command or whatever, which lets him keeps the play command a little easier or nicer to code because it doesn't have to do a lot of checking. The interrupt handler just you know kicks him out of the endless loop and uh, just puts him back on course pretty clever so what did we learn here I'm not sure we learned that much here but I thought it was a neat example I did uh, exploit this newfound knowledge of how these timings work recently in a side project so where I could uh, cause the play command to use the GMC card SN76489 chip for uh, playing tones and that's basically all I did <laughs> um, the timing is pretty simple you know you can essentially completely avoid the uh, the, the endless looping or whatever <laughs> uh, or you can go into your own endless loop and, um, and while you know you start the, the, the card playing this audio now so that like I said that's leaving all the kind of the mechanical structure there of the existing play command in place and so um, it was pretty easy just to change it to use the, the different to use the hardware to generate frequency for the synthesis. Um, most people uh, are probably interested, or a lot of people are interested in, in getting some more functionality out of the play command. Unfortunately, uh, doing so is, means restructuring things in ways that it's not obvious to me how you would do it without a lot of restructuring or essentially duplicating or replicating the code somewhere else. Um, not just hacking the ROMs a little bit. You know, my ROM hack is pretty simple, but uh, if you want to support, like if you want to support multiple voices, well, then you're going to have to have uh, multiple command strings as one for each voice. And, well, redirecting to come from a different string is probably not a huge hack to the code. If you could figure out, you know, how to make it process three at a time, that part would be pretty simple, I think. But trying to process three strings at a time, you know, there's nothing that says that the um, the commands in the string 
that the position of the commands in the str in each string there's nothing to say that the position of the command in each string is somehow related to other the, the commands at the same position in another string which means you basically have to walk through them at their own pace um, which means keeping three sets of context going and uh, trying to keep them synchronized it's not impossible I'm sure but there's no no provision for that in the existing code so you're gonna have to write some new code for sure and pretty significant amount of it probably and like I said it's, a, it's just a kind of a difficult problem trying to keep those synchronized now you might be able to somehow compile them down I have thought about possibly taking the existing code in the ROM and making it um, kind of hacking it a bit to essentially compile the um, the music strings but then you're gonna have to allocate space for that compiled result and keep track of that and you know it's one problem after another so it's, it's solvable it takes some motivation which uh, considering how often I kind of get spit in my face from <laughs> dealing with certain parts of the community um, I'm not totally motivated to do something to please uh, that, that section of the community I hope you can understand that but it's something that could be done maybe somebody else will step up to do it we'll see also something other people would like to do is be able to do the background play like you can um, uh, with uh, like the Tandy 1000 basic you can tell it to play the music in the background the fact that you have hardware uh, sitting there able to do some of the work you know the work it's doing is is generating the frequency you, st you still need something to manage how long the tones are played so if you want to do that in the background you need to figure out how to run software in the background to do it It'd be perfect for something like OS 9 uh, maybe not so hard in something like I don't know, maybe Flex or something, but Disk Extender Color or any version of Color Basic, you're going to have to write that yourself. Again, not impossible. The code may look a bit like the context switch that we described uh, or I described a few minutes ago for uh, for the end of the play command or the end of the notes in the play command, but anyway, it's, it's essentially writing a little OS-like uh, <laughs> project just to make the, the uh, the play command run in the background. Um, that's generally called a concurrency in computer science. The idea of having concurrency in uh, in um, extended color basic, uh, <laughs> well, it seems a little far-fetched. Not impossible. I'm sure somebody can do it. I don't know. Uh, I guess I'm saying that if if it, to get there, you may just want to write a whole new command that uh, it may borrow some of the existing structure for processing the play uh, command data but you probably can't use that much of the existing uh, um, control logic um, just because it's sort of a whole different problem if you do want to um, to do the processing in the background so I don't know we may get there I already have code where I can compile the play command data uh, into stuff that can be consumed by assembly language. If you want to write a game and you want to do something like that and you want to use the Game Master cartridge, let me know. We can work on it. Um, we, I know uh, got Sheldon McDonald who basically wrote his own version of, of uh, a background player. Uh, I think he was pretty new to assembly language, so clearly it's not impossible. Tying it in with the play command and basic, well, it's not impossible either, but you know it's a little bit of a different problem. 
I'm not sure that's where my star points. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we'll see. I have a lot of, you know, humorless uh, destruction to be causing around the community and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, that's, of course, not true. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this tech segment. hope possibly you learned something. I hope definitely that you're inspired, if nothing else, to spend more time with your Coco. If you uh, get a chance, send me some feedback uh, to uh, feedback at cococrew.org. We'd love to hear from you, no matter what, Coco forever. All right, thank you. The Adventures of G.I. Joe, The Lost Satellite, starring talking G.I. Joe and his action equipment. G.I. Joe and the adventure team must track a lost satellite as it re-enters Earth's atmosphere. Red alert. Power up the candy color computer. The radar dish spins as it scans for the satellite. Then, suddenly, the color computer locks on. We've detected the satellite. It's headed for the Pacific Ocean. Here comes the G.I. Joe adventure helicopter with frogmen ready to assist in the recovery. They're in the water. Lower the winch and attach the satellite. Got it. Satellite secured. Create your own adventure. The G.I. Joe Satellite Control Unit with Tandy Color Computer. G.I. Joe Adventure Helicopter and G.I. Joe Figures sold separately. Have you ever needed to keep a family budget, estimate interest on your savings account or other investments, predict inflation's effect on your money, or figure interest on a loan? Maybe you sat down with a calculator or pencil and paper in hand but were discouraged by the amount of time involved or the complexity of the calculations. Spectaculator can make quick work of these and many other problems that come up every day. You just give Spectaculator the figures it needs to work with, tell it what to calculate, and in one step, Spectaculator displays the results you're looking for. Long columns of calculations that took hours to wade through by hand are handled by Spectaculator in a matter of seconds. You can instantly recalculate using new figures and new ways of producing results. Print your information on a line printer or save to disk for future use. Spectaculator requires a TRS-80 color computer equipped with extended basic, disk drive, and disk interface. Welcome back, all you coconuts, to Neil's Corner on episode 53 of the Coco Crew podcast. This segment will be dedicated to my sister, Melanie. Since the game I'm going to talk about was one of her absolute favorites, we spent many hours playing it back in the day. I also picked this game because it is a bit on the spooky side, and I figured it would go with the Halloween theme this month. I mean, how can a game not be scary when you can be killed by a Kestrel? Any guesses yet what this game might be? The game is called Rogue. It was one of the first disc-based games we purchased for our Coco. Another super cool thing to note about this game is that it was my first exposure to an operating system called OS9 Level 2. Up until this point, all I was using our disk drive for was saving our basic programs to floppy. So I was fairly fluent in disk extended color basic and learning the commands. But I'll always remember when we got rogue and the disk said to type DOS and press enter. And I would see dead center on the screen the words OS9 boot. I was like, what the heck is this? And then only to be booted up and left at a different prompt with the writing shell OS9. At this point, I could tell this was a different operating system, and I wanted to check it out. This was my first time with OS 9, and I'm sure all of you can remember your first time. With OS 9, that is. Because I didn't get my first computer, the Coco 3, until later on in its life, I was fortunate to have a floppy disk drive and not have to deal with slow tape drives. I experienced that later on, of course, just for fun and curiosity mainly. And now who would have guessed, all these years later, the cassette commands are more handy than anything, people using them off their cell phone. Alright, I got a little sidetracked. Back onto the game. Rogue is a Dungeons and Dragons style game, 
with a turn-based feel. There are a total of 26 dungeon levels to explore through. The object of the game is to recover the Amulet of Yander, and then climb your way back to the surface. As you continue your journey, you have to map everything as you go by moving around in each dungeon. And in the later levels, some of the dungeons are not lit, so you can only see your immediate surroundings in those rooms. You collect food, potions, scrolls, armor, rings, and other goodies along your way, all while you must defeat the monsters you encounter. This game dates back to the late 1970s, as it was first originated on the mainframes of many computers back then. It wasn't until 1980 it became super common in the university world. It eventually became included in the distribution of BSD Unix. It was very innovative for the time, as it used ASCII characters as graphic displaying the dungeons you were exploring. Later versions of this game got very complex and started to include all different monsters. Potions, scrolls, wands, weapons, armor, and more that can be found in the Coco version. It was ported to almost any 80s microcomputer during the mid-80s that you can think of. The Coco version came out in 1986, the birth year of the actual Coco 3. It was also the very first OS9 level 2 game, and it was published by Epix Software. Here are some cool factoids about the Coco version. Yes, it will run on a stock 128K machine, and support 40 or 80 column mode. 40 column mode was meant for people using televisions, and 80 column mode was for Rockefeller who owned an RGB monitor. In 40 column mode, you had to scroll through the text and maps, whereas the 80 column mode, everything fits static on the screen. If you had 256K or more memory upgraded in your Coco 3, you could run the game in a special graphics mode. This allowed your character, the monsters, and other objects to look real instead of the regular text graphics. Also, because this game ran in OS 9, you could run it in the background and do true multitasking. You could also shrink the game window down and play it alongside something else on the screen. You can also load more than one instance of this game at the same time. You can thank the power of OS 9 operating system for this. Well, there you have it. Another game for you to revisit or try for the first time on your Coco 3. I know I've just convinced myself to get back into this game. It has definitely been a while. I need to set my sister up with a Coco 3 so she can enjoy it again too. Until next month, happy Coco gaming and Coco forever. Well, it's that time. We have reached the end of episode 53. We hope you all enjoyed this month's edition. As per usual, I'd like to thank our host, John Linville, for procuring all the news items you hear each month and for continuing to bring us brilliant tech segments. Also, a huge, huge thanks to Mike Rowan for creating those super fun commercials and editing the podcast each month. Believe me, I can vouch. Editing is not a fun job. Thank you to Boise Pete for bringing us Coco History and sharing some of your time this month to capture an informative interview with you. Thank you to Ron Klein for being a part of this podcast full-time. Last but not least, a big, big thank you to all who listen and support us each month. We also really do enjoy getting your feedback. Until next month, have some fun with your Coco, and perhaps get into a project or two as the winter months are upon us. Coco and Retro Forever. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco.
like there's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past. Dance, dance, dance.